adventure Climbing on the mountainside Welcome everyone to Wrestlemania season 1991 We are fresh off the Dusty Road special And today Miz Fan has chosen matches and promos That will get us from here to Wrestlemania 7 just before the show started, I pulled up that WrestleMania 7 card. And just off a quick look, it's almost like every other match interests me. So it's a pay-per-view I don't remember that much as a whole. So we got new territory to explore. Uh, today, we will discover or seek out or be introduced to some ideas like what happens when a man uses arrogance to reclaim his career, but maybe that arrogance gets out of control. What happens when a man who is a seer becomes blinded in one eye? What happens when a man who is part brain, part weasel, starts to have that weasel side overtake him? Uh, so many storylines going in Savage Warrior, uh, Heenan, Bossman, Jake, Rick Martell, and Mr. Perfect begins and continues, excuse me, continues to create a legacy in a relatively short amount of time <clears throat> that excuse me a little bit sick today that i see title continues to be where it's at in wwf as the main event continues to lag ladies and gentlemen let's get into it this is a bonus episode i am the mystic and i am joined by my friend and co-host by god my learned colleague mr Ms. fan the brain greetings Miz fan fans welcome indeed back to wwf the legacy series as 1991 rolls on and promises to be a highly interesting year we have as promised skipped the main event episode of february of this year because it includes jim duggan versus sergeant slaughter and Hogan teaming up with Tugboat in two of the three matches, and that's just a bad ratio that we don't want to deal with. So it is all bonus footage today. I hope you have been able to follow along with it. I put it on the forums. I put it on Twitter. It is there for you to find. I hope you can watch it with us. We are preparing for WrestleMania 7, an event which seems to be the polar opposite of WrestleMania 6 insofar as at WrestleMania 6, it seemed that no match had any build behind it except the main event. And the main event, the only thing you could say about it is, hey, look at these two big names. They're going to fight each other. And that's not much of a story, ladies and gentlemen. But this year, for better and for worse, we've got stories up and down the card. We've got blindfold matches. We have career-threatening matches. We have matches about insults to a person's mother. We have matches about insults to a person's manhood. We have matches about America itself. Now, we don't love all of these, but I got to say, I think we love most of these. That's some good stories for WrestleMania season. WWF is more or less back on track, at least for a while. So we're going to talk about some interesting stuff today. We're going to build up to that. We're going to talk about some great matches as well that we have pulled out here. I'm very excited. I think it should be a very good episode. Absolutely. You, you hyped it more than I was able to hype it to myself. So um, <laughs> I do appreciate that. One thing I have seen, we have kind of had this Russell Artist 87 commentary where, oh, that's a 1987 feud, or that's a 1987 character. 
And those are still around. And like, as you just said, they're somewhat plentiful if you look for them because Bossman is just like batting a hundred percent for a while now in storylines that he's in. Oh yeah. Um, uh, deep, uh, you've already said Martell and Jake. I will somewhere in these notes, I have another, that Benjamin Button statement again, that Ted DiBiase may be in his MVP year this year and not back in his so-called heyday uh, in the main event in WWF. <laughs> he is certainly, um, any uh, time like this where suddenly we are rich with character, and it is kind of sudden, but I'm very grateful for it. Uh, certain people tend to stick out in those times. Uh, Jake Roberts, uh, Randy Savage, I think, um, uh, Big Boss Man, as you said, um, Ted DiBiase as well, as you also said. Yeah, some of these people just really thrive when there's a chance to really get involved in an actual storyline. And I don't know what it is. It, it, it was so sparse in 1990. I feel like we went the whole year. We barely had any stories at all. And now we've got a whole bunch of them. So this is, uh, this is very nice. This is right up my alley. This is what I want from the WWF. They got to tell me these stories. Or as we saw in 1990, they don't have a whole lot to fall back on. Yeah. I know from, uh, growing up in this time that time, uh, took longer back then, folks. <laughs> and, you talked about the difference between WrestleMania six and WrestleMania seven. Well, who among us has money on a year from now? Ric Flair will be the heavyweight champion going into WrestleMania. <laughs> yeah, no, that, this year is going to be tumultuous. Uh, we're going to see a lot of things come and go. By that time, we will have Sid. We will have uh, an entirely different undertaker or at least a different manager an undertaker who knows more who he is um we're gonna have a lot of stuff people will go as well mr perfect will be long gone by this time next year from uh from wrestling in the ring he will be a suited uh manager uh to one man only and uh, while i enjoy that role it's very different it's uh, it's not quite the same as uh having him in the ring and as you said we're gonna cover a few matches of mr perfect today and he's gonna prove his worth many times over i think Man, that's strange. So Mr. Perfect, who we are leaning on for matches, won't be wrestling in a year. Undertaker, who doesn't even have Paul Bearer right now, will be a former heavyweight champion in a year from now. Uh, Ric Flair will be the heavyweight champion. Mr. Perfect, again, will be out of wrestling. Macho Man Randy Savage will retire from wrestling, return to wrestling, and challenge for the world title in a calendar year. So, again, I think Tumultuous a very good word for this. There's a lot going on. Jake Roberts will be a very different Jake Roberts oh, yeah. uh, than he is right now. He will have a heel turn. So uh, Ultimate Warrior will be in the door, out the door, and back in the door. <laughs> it's unbelievable, man. And just so much changed. Um, we we spent so much time, especially with the world title thing, and things never changed. Like Hogan's still champ or Warrior's still champ, you know. But things are changing rapidly, and we're going to find out. Uh, as folks who know their history obviously know, Hulk Hogan kind of could carry the ball whether he was in his heyday or not. Then he puts over Warrior, who can't do it. Mm. So Warrior will ultimately put over Slaughter, who will put over Hogan, who can no longer have a long title reign successfully. Indeed, and now uh, we're kind of in a time where nobody can have a long reign like uh, Hogan did at the time, or at least it's never been attempted um, yeah, I don't know. Hogan was the last of the really long kind of multi-year reigns. We're not going to see anything like that again, uh, maybe ever 
you know, the closest thing coming up, we have, unfortunately, Diesel for about a calendar year will be champion. But uh, beyond that, yeah, uh, at best, you're probably going to get like nine months or less, you know, often much less. We'll get to a period where you can't hold the the title for nine days, practically. So <laughs> we'll see yeah. some changes as we go along. Diesel may have the longest reign in the 90s. I don't know if that's correct or not. It's got to be. I don't know who else it could be. So That's such an interesting uh, decade, Joyce. <laughs> interesting is a kind way to put it. <laughs> who else has had like, super long? I know JBL, I think, had a fairly long reign. CM Punk had a long reign. Yeah, JBL, I think, did like nine months. I think Cena did a little bit over a year in, the, um, I want to say, like 2007, that area. Um, yeah, CM Punk... Uh, had it for over a year at one point. Um, so there's been a few, but they're definitely few and far between here. Man, that's so strange. You know, I think there's something fitting that... I think Hogan was going to fade anyway. That's why you got Warrior. You need Warrior. But there's also a truth in... WWF often thinks that they can give away anything to anyone, any way they want, and nothing can touch them. And this is where I think you so smartly came up with that concept of that kind of slow burn of goodwill, yeah. you know. But like I said, I don't. I think Hogan's days are numbered anyway. But I also think two things can be true, and I think they gave some things away at WrestleMania six that they never could gather back in any form. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah, I mean, I've said it many times. It's always, it's often the sequel where you see the the result of the previous installment, and we know that WrestleMania Seven is just not going to draw like other WrestleManias did, and uh, it will be a sign of things to come over the next several years. So yeah, I, they're reaping what they sowed for sure, and it's a shame that now they like kind of rediscover their creativity, but I think they almost did it really too late here. And a lot of people uh, were already in the process of leaving. And once you once you have broken that connection, it is so hard to get it back. You know, once you have it, it's so strong. But once it's broken, man, you can't reforge that thing without tremendous, tremendous effort. Yeah. I do think if Warrior had been legit successful, I don't think he would have had a four-year reign. But I think he would have been the longest reign in the 90s. Like, I could see year and a half, you know, definitely longer, a little longer than Diesel. But, you know, he he kind of going to flame out, not even make it past Royal Rumble. And then, it's weirdly, with WWF, a lot of these reigns we're talking about will be heel reigns. So, yeah. you know, CM, CM Punk, JBL. And then, even in the 90s, we're going to move into an era where Ric Flair is going to be world champion. Um, Yokozuna is going to have a long title reign. So, yeah. something that we have not really seen in the Vince McMahon junior um era is that we're now going to rely on heels for longer title reigns and there's so many implications coming to this company and they're partly sitting in them already and they're partly still have some to come so uh these are these are some of the toughest years for wwf especially with what is to come mm. with the steroid scandal with uh trying to establish the new generation trying to really reset the entire promotion in a way. So that's one thing I'll give credit for Vince McMahon. Like I think most people, when they credit him, they like to credit like, Oh, he dominated wrestling like these best years. <laughs> I'm almost more impressed with him surviving what is to come. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely something to that. I look forward to examining that. Um, and to the long reigns as well. I mean, uh, I feel like, 
at some point, the multi-year reign was sort of redefined to be, like, the six-month-plus reign, maybe, because, mm-hmm. like, there still will be a lot, like, I think Bret Hart will carry it seven, eight months at one point. Shawn Michaels will carry it seven, eight months at one point. Um, you know, it's kind of a new standard, just uh, as attention spans shorten. I suppose. So we'll watch out for the long reigns that do come along. There's definitely going to be a few, but certainly nothing like that amazing, historic Hogan 80, what, 83 to 88 reign that uh, I think will never be duplicated after the fact, after it happened. Absolutely. Demands are going to change, especially with the Monday Night War, like ratings will sometimes even trump pay-per-view and it's just, it's just going. We're, we're moving into different worlds here. Uh, I think it's another reason that you can't just keep going back to Hogan because, yeah, you know, we're not living in that same world in any way anymore. And Hulk Hogan's not the same Hulk Hogan, and the fan base is not the same fan base, and the relationship is not the same relationship. So I do wonder what you're thinking at these times when you're WWF. Like, okay. You cannot convince me. I don't care about the the argument. Did WWF want to replace Hogan with the Warrior, or did they at least want another successful Hogan-like character? So you you cannot be fully uh, impressed with the money and the lack thereof, the house show attendance, the lack thereof with Ultimate Warrior. Then you're gonna have this weird slaughter title reign right when we go declare war. You can't be happy with that. Then you're gonna have Hulk Hogan, you know who. By Survivor Series, will drop the belt, and the only other pay-per-view is a tag match. So nothing is working anymore, and now we're just beating a dead horse so we can get off of it, but no offense <laughs> to horses here. But what you said is that goodwill gets burned, and it's not necessarily even what they're doing right now, even though it partly is because they're stupid choices, but it is a result of just a lot of goodwill burn like Hogan wrestling Zeus is still a part of what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's weird, but we're still, I kind of feeling the hangover of that. So I don't know. It's strange because Hogan, yeah, he's flagging. And I think we can see that in hindsight, but uh, things are not always so clear. You talk a lot about like, it's different watching as a fan and then watching like if you have the money. And I think if you have this history with Hogan, where in many ways he turned the business on its head, he revolutionized it to a place where you didn't think that it could go. Nobody really thought that it could go. It's hard to kill that golden goose. And, you know, maybe you tried to put the goose in the pasture and bring in a different goose, but that goose just shit all over the kitchen, so now you need to bring the golden goose back in. But those eggs, they aren't quite so golden anymore, so uh, I don't know. I think they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to go back to what works. It doesn't work the same as it used to, but they're trying it. And uh, in the meantime, yeah, we've got what we've got. But then, strangely enough, Hulk Hogan is also going to be dominating that era that you talked about later in the Attitude Era. He's going to be champion again for more than a year over on the other side and uh, have one of the most successful reigns over there. So Hogan's a very complicated guy to talk about. He is. Like, right now, I don't know that you could confidently go with anybody else. Like You haven't really right. set yourself up for that. Weirdly enough, the strangest thing to me that's coming is that they don't make Sid a babyface world champion. <laughs> I mean... Surely it was the plan to. I've certainly heard that they were very high on Sid, but Sid is Sid, 
is Sid is Sid is Sid. So I guess maybe it was never going to work out. But um, I don't know. It, it's a strange story that we're going to have to get into as well when we really get to it. Because Sid is... <laughs> I don't even know what to say about Sid anymore. So... Yeah, I don't. I don't think he would have been successful, but like it just Vince McMahon loves Sid, and he will be a world champion on multiple occasions in this decade. Uh, so it's oh, just God, baffling. Really, that, really? I thought it was just the. I thought it was just the once. Or you mean WCW too? Oh, he only went once in WWF. I thought so. I could be wrong. I try to avoid Sid, so I might. You're probably wrong. right. Just that transition <laughs> title reign. Uh. For Shawn Michaels. That but hey, he'll main event multiple WrestleManias, though, title or not. So, I mean, you're definitely right about that. No, um, does he go into WrestleMania 13 as champion? Oh, maybe he does. There's like, I swear there's like 10 title changes before WrestleMania 13, and it's like a whole okay. thing. So you, you He's also champion in 97. Right. Yeah, okay, yeah, you might be right then. So, I just know he had multiple, because, like, the only reason I know it is all this, like, Lex Luger was never over enough to be a WWF champion, but Sid's a multiple-time champion. <laughs> That's the only narrative I know it from, but yeah. I, like, I would have been tempted, and I guess the point I'm trying to make is at this moment they haven't um, really given themselves many opportunities except Hulk Hogan, but it's funny that they really brought Sid in to replace Hulk Hogan, and then all, all that we're going to see is that Sid's going to be cheered over Hogan, so then the plan is going to be to turn Hulk, to turn Sid, even though Hogan's still leaving after WrestleMania. So we will get into that next year. But that the Hogan Savage, Flair Sid stuff is some of the strangest booking. Uh, if it was WCW, there would be decades and decades of intense scrutiny about how they did things. But it's WWF, so you get a glancing blow here and there, and you move on. Well, we will provide some intense scrutiny of that moment, and we will see what we find. Um, but yeah, to your point... I think we've talked about this before, but how wild is it that they're going to put Randy Savage on the shelf here at WrestleMania when they're kind of having these other issues and they're kind of struggling a little bit? Like, that would be the last thing on my mind if I were in charge of this, money or not. So Yeah, we're making him old when he's not old. We're retiring him when we don't really have to. Maybe he needed a break. But then we're going to bring him back having made him old, and we're going to give him the world title in a time where we could have had Hogan Flair, which is the dream match of decades, or we could have Sid, who's super over as a babyface. So I don't know. I don't understand a lot of things they do. There's so many lies out there because Randy Savage, all he wanted to retire, he wanted to be in the office, but he leaves the WWF so he can wrestle in WCW for another half decade. So, you know, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, a lot of things um, that are said don't, don't make much sense about that, but... Uh... Yeah, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting. We'll have to go through it all as we come to it. We're we're entering, um, you know, the the 80s were almost a very straightforward time in a lot of senses. Like they did things, it made sense, it was very successful. You could almost not imagine they would do another thing, uh, right up until that storyline you mentioned with Zeus, where everything kind of went wonky. And now, now we enter this period that maybe we never really left, where they do things, and you're like. Huh? What? What? Why'd they do that? I don't understand. You know, so even though we're going to have some good stuff, uh, I think we've definitely left that that nice, almost childlike time where everything was just kind of straightforward and it made a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, you put together the matches and the promos, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, mm -hmm. because there's, there definitely is several um, good things going on. But if you had to pick one that you are most excited about as far as matches, feuds of this time, 
Like, where would you go? Oof. Well, of the ones we're going to talk about today, uh, I would say I'm, I I can't just say one. I think I'll say a few here uh, that I'm most excited about. I'm excited about a lot of these, but as far as feuds go, I honestly don't think I can choose between Jake Martell and Virgil DiBiase because I think these are two of the most creative, uh, incredibly hot feuds that you will see all through this era, maybe of any time, because both of them are like non-traditional feuds. It's not just, hey, we have two great wrestlers. Let's make them wrestle and, you know, let's give them some reason. And that's all great. Like a lot of great feuds are built on that and you can add layers as you go. But in both of these cases, you have like a handicap as the blindfold is like a handicap to a traditionally good match. And then Virgil, even though I think he's underrated, you know, we know he's not much of a wrestler, like he has his limitations. So in both of these cases, they could have gone really wrong. And yet they will be just some of the most incredibly enjoyable things we will see maybe in all of the legacy series. So I'm very excited, especially to talk about these two feuds. As far as matches we're going to talk about today, there are some really great ones. But for me, I think nothing is going to top Mr. Perfect versus Shawn Michaels, Mm -hmm. which I'm going to position as kind of the main event of this show. They have a match in 1993, which is much more famous and is much worse than this. You know, it's not bad. It's got some good things, but it, it is like known as a disappointment. So when I came across this match and it is as good as it is, I was just so excited. I love this match that we're going to talk about. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff today, but that's like the highlights of, I think, the top stuff that we're going to talk about here. Yeah, I think we're in agreement on much of that. To me, I don't even know if what I would call the best is also my favorite. They might not even be the same thing. Mm. Um, I think the Rick Martel and Jake Roberts, strangely enough, and then the DiBiase and Virgil. DiBiase and Virgil, to me, feels like it's happening in 1991, and I don't mean that as a compliment or an insult. Rick Martel and Jake feels like it's happening in 87 or 88, mm. and I don't mean that as a compliment or an insult. It's just there's this grittiness. This is, I, mean, I don't know if it's all Jake Roberts, but, like, the same vibe of, like, Honky Kong Man hitting him with the guitar on that set. Yeah. You know, it's just a different place, a different feel. Jake Roberts has a distinct energy about him. Rick Martel is a ridiculous superstar in professional wrestling. And, you know, the only knock that we could put on him, oh, he might not be great on the mic or he might not be a great character. That's out the window now because he's in a great promo doing a great job and props to WWF for giving him arrogance because he doesn't have to say a lot. He just has to walk around the set spraying arrogance on snakes while Jake Roberts tries to do a promo. Like there's so much good stuff. But then DiBiase, how do you, how do you put it? Like I want to put Jake in and Martel as the best, but how do you put it over DiBiase and Virgil, which is had like a, a four year slow burn. Like it's almost impossible to do that. Then, you know, we're not even being fair to Bossman and Heenan because we, we mm. called a lot of their stuff on a separate show. So we're only getting a little bit. But like if you put all that stuff together, you know, is it not in the same conversation? So for the promos and the feuds, I think you hit it on the head. And then that Shawn Michaels, Mr. Perfect matchup, like oh. Shawn Michaels is now closer to a single star than he is a tag wrestler. And that is a beautiful, beautiful matchup. Indeed, and what a treat that he could fight Mr. Perfect at his best. 
uh, at his peak, which he is very much at here, and they can have this match. And, ah, God, I'm just very excited to talk about it. That is a fantastic match that we are going to cover. If you've ever built, like, a paper plane, and then you threw it, and it's like, stays high for one second, and then it darts down, we'll get into it. But Michael jumps over the top rope and hits everything in the arena except Mr. Perfect at one point. <laughs> Oh, it's one of the most incredible dives that I've seen in the WWF. Uh, Undertaker yeah. will attempt to uh, imitate it much later. WrestleMania 25, he will do mm. uh, a similar uh, dive that is at the same time catastrophic and yet incredible. And it really just adds so much to the match. So amazing stuff there. Yeah, it's it, it's an episode, I think, this one here that is so necessary because WWF, the Legacy Series. I don't think it's ever just been about pay-per-view. Like, I, I don't even remember, like, oh, man, we had this one and that one, and we look forward to this and that. We've kind of taken the pay-per-views as they've come, but the shows in between have been so good because of the stories and characters that they've at least been on the level, if not surpassing it. And now we're having to do a little bit more work, you know, I think at times. But I think, like we've said, maybe we're coming into – maybe another era, another run of great characters and great storylines. I think we're there, yeah. We we have uh, achieved that era already. I mean, just look at some of the great stuff on this show. Like you said, some of this could have come right from 87. Some of it has a, a distinct 91 flavor, and yet that flavor is uh, extremely good as well, I think, in many ways. It's just unfortunate that the main event, as we said, is lagging so far behind, because if that was firing, then, man, we'd be talking about all-time indisputable great period and i mm. think we'll get there we just have to get past SummerSlam and this stupid slaughter feud which will not go away it's amazing what a main event can do because you are right like, who knows if the main event was as good as the rest of it because we're not even talking about warrior like the legacy moment of warrior and savage like that's kind of in the background but that is that is an enormous moment in wrestling history mm. so if the main event could at least be on that level and then have everything else that we have, that is a whole, an entirely different conversation than we're having right now. Yeah, oh, indeed, indeed. That Hogan, uh, war, uh, I'm sorry, Savage Warrior stuff, um, it's interesting because uh, both the first time I went through this era and then again putting together this show, I looked and looked for, like, more about this feud and... Maybe maybe it's just scrubbed off YouTube or something, but, man, it is just not there. Like, they had their confrontation at the Rumble. It was good. We saw Savage, like, running around like a man on fire, um, and that was good. But you'd think there would be more, and that just keeps coming up with Savage, the poor guy. Like, with Dusty, we hope there would be more. Um, and even with, like, Warrior and Hogan, we hope there'd be more, and just, uh, I don't know, so there, there's a flavor of that. We know the match is going to be good, they've kind of set the table well enough, and it is going to deliver, so at least they've got that going for them, but man, I don't know, you just think there would be, like, more going into it. It's a little disappointing still. Yeah, it's more modern-day booking, where, like, Savage, for a year, seems to only care that he's the king. He doesn't care that he's floundering, he doesn't care that he's ever been a world champion, doesn't really care about anything, he's just the king. You know, and he's a heel. Mm. I mean, all of a sudden he wakes up one day and he's got this narrative like, I'm the greatest world champion of all time and I want to be the world champion. But nothing makes it happen except for like a booking meeting or a creative meeting behind the scenes. And that is never going to deliver in the same way that, you know, 
Right? Bossman has been on a roll since he stood on a platform and let us know why he didn't take a bribe. Mm. You know, yeah. he didn't come out one week and he's like, I don't take bribes. And we're like, OK, cool. You know, there was a story that helped like bring it along. Yep, motivation is important. Uh, shifting character is important. You actually have to uh, show that. You can't just tell people, oh, well, now he wants to be world champion. No, he has to come out with Bobby Heenan, and the champion has to say, you can't be with him, you know, and that's why he wants a title now, and he didn't before. So, you know, it's important to actually do those things, take those steps. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a, a stumble in that storyline, but you know what? It's going to deliver anyway, so I'm not going to be too down on it. And I think Savage is a man of seasons. Mm. You know, this is never going to be a man who's going to be consistently one way for 10 years, and I don't want him to be. It's not who he is. So we have that great IC champion, Randy Savage. We have Hogan's friend, Randy Savage, who's partly world champion. We have Hogan's enemy, Randy Savage, who's partly world champion. Uh, We have Savage and Sherry. And then... The same thing, like, he's going to be with Sherry pretty much as long as he's going to be with Liz this next time. Like, this is going to be a season. Mm-hmm. It's going to be beautiful historically because it's a different Savage. Again, like, it's that reunion. It's him, like, you know, being kind of just picked up off the mat that he is scraped off of. It's going to be the match made in heaven, the retirement, the reinstatement. You know, but then he's going to be a retired announcing Savage. So, like, he really is a man of seasons. Um, <laughs> and... A big reason that we're doing the Legacy Series is for those seasons. So we need to really also be mindful that even if WWF's not doing a good job, we are in the final, final Savage Sherry moment. So we also have to uh, we have to give that the credit that it is due it. Oh, absolutely. Deep appreciation for that pairing and uh, for all that is to come here. So we'll talk about it all. Um, I will just say, talking about seasons and... Um, and Savage and the changes that he will go through. Man, the more I think about it, I don't know if there is uh, ever a stricter, a harder, a thicker defining line that the WWF ever drew than between 1992 and 1993. Because the more I think about that divide, the more I feel like we're going to cross over into like a different universe at yeah. that time. So so we're coming up on a, a major transition. But man, we got some glory days to live before we hit it. Yeah, it's very clear. Hogan's going out on a well. Hogan's going out, you know, soon into '93. They're going to pretty much tell Ric Flair, "We don't have anything for you. We're going with younger stars. So if you can get money at WCW, do that." Mm. You know, Savage is going to be placed in the booth. So we are all we're in the last season. Oh man, that's a weird thing to even say, but this is like Hogan Savage. That era where you just like that's never going to end. Like as long as they want to dominate, they're going to dominate. Now, now we are coming into the last uh, years of that, and you can see, you can tell. Like I don't know which one do you think is more obvious that Bret Hart and some of his friends are on the come up, or that Hogan and Savage are on the way eventually out. I would think the Bret thing is more obvious because yeah. with Hogan, even though he's flagging. I can imagine him hanging around till like, you know, as long as he hung around in WCW, mm. like, you know, he's so ingrained in this company that I think if he had not wanted to go out to Hollywood, he potentially could have just sat on top until the company died, you know, like mm. they really they really want to stick with him, I think. Um, so I could be wrong about that. It could be totally incorrect, but uh it feels more obvious 
that we're going to get this different breed with Bret Hart, with Shawn Michaels. These guys, you know, they are becoming more obvious. Yet Hogan, I mean, we're in the midst of this slaughter thing, and they're just sticking with it, sticking with it, sticking with it. So it's like, will anything make them quit on Hulk Hogan? I don't think so, because they're going to get kicked out of their huge arena because he can't sell enough tickets, and yet he's still going to be, like, the main focus for a while. So, you know... Yeah, never forget that he's going to main event WrestleMania's 8 and 9 for no reason. And 9, that's, yeah, amazing. Even, I'm st- I'm talking, I'm sitting here talking about, like, 1993 is so different. And then, yeah, yeah, you remind me, Hulk Hogan is going to leave that WrestleMania's champion. So I guess it's not that different, even though he's going to look like a different person because he stopped yeah. taking his steroids. But, you know, <laughs> so, my God. I mean, I saw WrestleMania. For, for those of you who like documentary stuff, if you can handle, like, highs and lows the the first icons episode on wwe network is out and it's a yokozuna special mm. uh there are parts of it that are super nice and there's parts of it that's super sad but i watched that entire thing so i saw hogan looks like a skeleton number one at wrestlemania 9 and you know i was just thinking while you were saying that i think he needed wcw like even if he did a hogan heel turn in wwf in the 90s like, I don't know if it would work or not. Of course, in the right era, right moment, but there would have been no WCW, like, pushing against WWF. So, like, when are you going to do it? Are you going to do it, like, in the Bob Spark plug Holly era? Are you, you know, <laughs> like, he, he needed desperately. He needed to be away from WWF, and WWF needed to be away from him. Like, there's a reason that Ric Flair is going to be in the WWF soon. Like, you cannot just stay in one place forever without people getting tired. Yeah. It definitely helps tremendously in WCW that he actually is an outsider and he feels like one. And that's part of what makes it work so well. Um, The only counter I can have to that is just thinking about it off the top of my head. I could definitely see an appeal if they did it right. And I can hardly imagine that they would, but the idea of a Hulk Hogan trying to like hold on to the top of the company as Steve Austin is coming up, Maybe you can make that Hogan heel. Maybe you can make something amazing out of that. I could see it happening. But, yeah, I think in the end it was best that it happened the way it did happen. Yeah, I I could only see it in the Attitude Era, and maybe that's because we know what Hogan's capable of in that era. But at the same time, that would mean somehow you would have to have survived four or five more years of Hogan as babyface on top and still somehow transition to that Austin era in 97. Yeah, that would have been very difficult for sure. So I don't know. Right now, we got so much stuff, so I'm going to let you yeah, – I got the notes in the order that you sent back and move them around, so I'll let you just kind of lead the way here. All right, I think we'll mostly stick to that order. Uh, first, we're going to talk about some promos, and later we're going to talk about some matches – um, so first off, yeah, we referenced it already, but, uh, one of the feuds that I'm definitely most excited about, Jake the Snake and Rick Martell, we got a couple of segments here that are going to put this, uh, this feud over and, uh, go back and kind of show everybody how it came about. So we start with Rick Martell, he's showing off his perfume arrogance on Brother Love, Brother Love brings out Jake Roberts because, uh, in his opinion, the snake needs to smell better because it's slimy and it stinks, according to him. <laughs> Jake says snakes don't stink, but Brother Love stinks. The people he hangs around with stink, which is probably fair enough. Um, 
but through this whole promo, and you, you mentioned this, but Rick Martel is kind of just like sneaking around the set. He's just like meandering around. He's spraying perfume. And whenever he gets a chance, he sprays like a big dose on the bag with Damien inside. And Jake warns him away. Jake uh, throws out some nice threatening lines. Um, this time, eventually, when Martel goes for the snake bag, Jake lunges kind of at him. He gets a big blast of that perfume in the eye, and this is where you get that 87 feeling, I think, because Jake goes down, and he's thrashing around, and he beautifully sells that uh, he can no longer see. We get a great moment where Big Boss Man comes out. He kind of wards away the heels. He tries to flush out the eyes of Jake. Jake is still in pain. Uh, this is a great segment. When we talk about inciting incidents, this is one of the first ones that I always think of, because this is a brilliant segment, and it's set up like, months of this feud so i'm just very very impressed with this segment if you haven't seen it i think uh, it's something you need to check out this is top notch you can feast on storylines like this uh arrogance to me is iconic already (laughs) you know i don't know what rick martell would be as far as character wise if it's just rick martell but there's something about the arrogance was introduced well it's obnoxiously big for like a perfume (laughs) bottle um and he doesn't mind using it. I don't know what they're selling it for, but he uses it uh, without being spare, without sparing uh, much. <laughs> I think in our next award show, I guess around the end of '94, we need to have a vote on what the best uh, supporting cast, whatever. I don't know how we talk about it yet because <laughs> prop anything, pet, uh, yeah, thing yeah, they bring to the ring, yeah. <laughs> Snakes and birds, but also two by fours and uh, perfume bottles. Nightsticks, yeah. <laughs> Nightsticks, you know, I'd, I'd really like to see the vote on that. I'd love to see it. We will definitely have to include it because we're in an era rich with those props, even more so than before. So, good stuff. It's that world that when Vince McMahon is right, like there's no other place in the world that you can turn on the TV and Jake Roberts has his snake in a bag while he's talking to Brother Love. While Rick Martell is wandering around spraying perfume all over, like there's no no other show's gonna do that. (laughs) True, yeah, I can't imagine. Even in the goofier parts of WCW, you just uh, I think you would never get this exact flavor of uh, of character and story where it's almost it's kind of a cartoon, but like maybe one of those great cartoons that you still watch when you're an adult. You know, there's just something about it that is um, really it's just good. It's just very good stuff. Yeah, I think when we're trying to talk about auras and, like, um, elements, and we're trying to talk about these invisible qualities, when it's done right, some of these objects are that physical manifestation of an extension of that character. Mm. You know, so that arrogance, like, he's spraying, like, not just a perfume, but, like, just his whole essence that everyone hates except him is his being sprayed around the building. And Jake Roberts and his snake, like, he is so protect, Like, he's a defensive, kind of paranoid. Brother Love says, kind of sick guy, so kind of yes and kind of no. But, like, then he manifests a snake that he is he wields freely. But if you even come close to it, even if you're not bothering it, like you incite something because mm. it's not just this. It's not a snake that's being incited. The snake's in the bag. The snake doesn't know any different. It's whatever that manifestation of that thing that makes Jake Roberts both brilliant and a little bit sick at the same time. So when done right, I do think these are physical manifestations of something deeper and 
greater. And when they all just come to life on a set, again, it's just unique storytelling that you're not going to see anywhere else. And I really highly recommend this. Um, I love Martell in this. I, even Brother Love. I like how the one thing I'll give him, I like Brother Model and Brother Snake, uh, <laughs> that kind of terminology. Uh, Jake has, says uh, he is a hired gun for his own stable. He is what Kane was to Abel. Mm. Man, that's great stuff. Uh, yeah, Brother Love has his moments. I think he's probably yeah, on one of his better runs here as far as that goes. So uh, it's good stuff. I love what you're saying about Jake and Damien being an extension of him. How well I remember that snake wrapped around his head as he was doing a promo. Mm. And it really did feel like it was just a part of his body at that point. Like he's fused with this snake in some terrifying way that we aren't meant to understand. Yeah. You would think it, like if he stayed healthy and stayed in his prime, mm. like this character would leave with his snake killing him. And it would be both a tragedy and halfway how he would want to go. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes. As I've said before, I would love nothing more than to see Jake Roberts as kind of in that Pat Patterson role that he was uh, promised in 1992. What what might we have seen if he had his influence over the whole company? I don't know, but would have been real interesting. Um, I'll say with Rick Martell shooting that arrogance all around, uh, I got to give a shout out to the last guy who used perfume uh, offensively or offensively to some, we shall say. That is Adrian Adonis. I'm getting a little vibe there. Two two absolute greats who are who are reclaiming that perfume for the fellas and uh, just doing some great great stuff with it. Yeah, Jake says if anything stinks in here, it's your upper lip and that wide back seat you got to brother love. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting. What do you think Rick Martell's motivation is? Because I don't see what you gain by like poking the snake. I think, uh, you know, long story short, he may just be a jerk, you know, and that, that sometimes that's enough. I think you got a guy like Rick Martell, and he's very particular. I think he likes to have things a certain way, and you've got a guy who doesn't really look clean, definitely doesn't look pretty. He comes out, he's like lugging a burlap sack around. It's got a gross animal inside. Like, this guy, <laughs> he's got to rub you the wrong way. So you're going to pick on him, you know, you're going to pick a fight. And Rick Martell, you know, he's a lot of things that we love. I don't know if he's done anything, which made me thought he was, like, brilliant. So maybe he's just going to get into something where he's in over his head. And we're definitely going to see that as we go along. So I don't know. Yeah, there's a unique um, psychology, perhaps, to Rick Martell. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing two sides that I can see. One of them is what you're saying, that maybe he's just a very arrogant guy, not a nice guy. He gets carried away, gets himself in trouble. Like, it's a typical heel of certain type of heel story. There's also the Rick Martell that he's starting to climb the ranks in the WWF. Like, he is moving far away from Tito as far as success in the WWF. He's going to go over 40 minutes in the Royal Rumble. He's going to wander around the set, but eventually he's going to spray Jake Roberts in the eye, get an advantage that he's going to have for a long time. So there's also this bit of either he is like nonchalantly like putting himself into a lot of spaces or maybe he's a lot craftier than his uh, character might uh, uh, suggest. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. Uh, Rick Martell positioning himself to uh, 
to get the win of sorts over one of the top guys in the company. And you got Jake Roberts has got to be easily yeah. top five baby face in the company. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so if you can put yourself over on that guy by hook or by crook, that's going to say a lot for your career. So that's a very good point as well. Um, last thing I just want to reiterate about this segment, uh, big round of applause to whoever backstage thought that big boss man should come out here because he's got that connection from when he turned babyface. He's got this kind of like weird respect with Jake Roberts. He's got his whole deal about like justice and all this. And yes, yeah, so big props to that. Uh, and to boss man as well. I, I really can't stress enough how much I love that boss man is like trying to flush the eyes of Jake Roberts, even though Jake is still like thrashing around in pain. It's just, it's great stuff there. Yeah, it's a top moment. It's also the fact that if there's a good storyline, Bossman, if he's not in it, he's around it. <laughs> oh, yes. Is there anything this man couldn't uh, improve by getting involved in? He, he's just one of the best. We're going we're gonna to keep talking about him for, for quite a while here. Yes, yeah, so I think two things happened. Like, that was a great segment in itself, but also because of the quality of Jake and others, we are also now in a wonderful storyline. Oh, absolutely. And this happens like, what, maybe before Survivor Series even? Mm -hmm. Like, this is way, way back. Like, they played this out so well over a long period of time. And there's a lot of segments, a lot of stuff that we're not even going to see where he is, like, at the doctor and they're checking him out. And you get shades of that Ricky Steamboat lyrics injury, mm -hmm. but uh, now it's on the eye. Um, there's other segments as well. We're going to cover one of them right here. Um, <clears throat> back on Brother Love, back on the scene of the crime. Uh, much later, we have Rick Martell out. He is apologizing for the accident, and he's doing it in such a way. I mean, you know what he's really saying. You know, it's not an accident. I'm not really apologizing, but I am going to say it. Uh, he goes even a step farther. He says, well, Jake was just a blundering fool. He stepped mm -hmm. in the way. So it's really Jake's fault, he, he implies. But uh, he still feels sorry for Jake. He has a gift that he's going to give to Brother Love to pass on, and it is a, a seeing-eye stick that Jake can uh, use. So we get Jake coming out next. Um, he is helped out. He's wearing the thick, dark glasses that cover all around his eyes. He's feeling around. He's playing blind. And he's doing a great job with it. And I'll give credit as well to Brother Love a little bit because he kind of walks around Jake mm -hmm. Roberts to confuse him and to kind of keep him uh, swiveling around and trying to figure out where exactly brother love is. There's some great stuff going into this segment. I'm going to pause a minute so I don't run away with things, but yeah, no, some very good stuff in the setup here. It's top notch. And it's almost why Jake has to be a heel because the only thing I don't find believable is even the dumbest heel ought to know better than to do what they're doing to Jake Roberts right now. <laughs> because I get the heel tendency, like when you're winning, like you, you run away with it, you get stupid, you get arrogant. But between Rick Martell, what he's done, and now Brother Love, which that was brilliant. Brother Love is going to be all over the set. He's going to not speak until he's moved to a different part so that Jake all of a sudden hears his voice from a different place. And like playing, again, the extension with the snake, Playing with Jake Roberts is like poking a snake, and the first two times you don't get bit. But, get, you know, what do you think is going to happen before it's over? You know, so I don't know if I should give credit to these guys or if they're just plain stupid, but, like, you're picking a fight that you're not going to win is what I would tell them if I was guiding them. <laughs> yeah, that that's probably true. I'll say two things to that. One, you've got to imagine that they they must have thought, 
arrogantly or not, that they had taken Jake out for good, that he was not going to be able to, to regain his sight the way he had it before. He was not going to be able to get back in the ring at this point. They, they, they figured they were just picking on a guy who couldn't come back at them. Um, so you've got that on one side. And then on the other side, man, I feel like there actually is an element of realism because I think you will see, like, um, certain kinds of kids, you know, like bullies perhaps, who will just uh, pick on something until it hurts them, and then they'll be so surprised and so hurt that they got hurt, and yet it's just a certain kind of personality, you know, and I think uh, maybe it's not something you or I can relate to on a personal level, I hope, but I think there is kind of a realistic element to that. Yeah, well, realistically, they're going to pay a price for it, so. Because, like, my favorite line that is when you, from model is what you said, like, the stupid blundering fool stepped into the smell of arrogance. Like, again, that's a classic heel move, like, he's apologizing was saying it's Jake's fault, but at the same time, if I told you, here's the WWF roster, all their faces are on the screen, pick out the guy who is a stupid, blundering fool, <laughs> how long would it take you to get to Jake Roberts? <laughs> you have to go all the way to the end, practically. Yeah, <laughs> I get it, I get it, and I, I still I take your side of it, like, when, when you think that you have blinded a man and that he can't work anymore, you got quite an advantage, but Ah uh, man, I apologize. I don't know if it's BK uh, in the forums or if it's R. Proc. It's been a long time ago, but I think they said something like all you did was like awaken or heighten the other senses of Jake Roberts. So congratulations on your prize. Uh, yes, they will regret it very much. Um, but the second continues. Uh, Brother Love does give the seeing eye stick to Jake, and I love this because Jake's already kind of had enough. He swings it at Brother Love right away, uh, but he misses. Uh, he kind of knocks over the set. He kind of knocks over himself a little bit. Uh, but Jake Jake says, just lead me to the right spot, and I'll remind Rick Martell that it is an eye for an eye. And that, oh, God, that is, mm. that's a great line right there. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that he's going to poke out one of your eyes. It means that, like, what, whatever level of shame or discomfort he feels you've given him. He's going to give you that measure in some way, <laughs> shape or form. Absolutely. Uh, Rick Martel returns to the set. And I think this is great because I feel like he waited till he knew it was kind of safe that Jake actually really was blind. And then he comes back out. He taunts Jake who, who tries for him. He can't find him. Martel darts in, slaps him. Security kind of pushes Martell away, but Jake is just lashing out blindly. And I love this because he, he feels somebody. He doesn't know who it is, but he just snaps the DDT on them by feeling alone, crashes down, who turns out it's Brother Love. It's not Rick Martell, but he just grabbed the first person that he could feel. He took his shot. Uh, his glasses fall off. We see his messed up eye. It's a great look. It's a great angle. I love this stuff. You know, this this is really what I came here for in WWF The Legacy Series, segments just like this one. Yeah, this is beautiful storytelling because at WrestleMania 7, you still don't know fully what Jake can do, what a blindfold match looks like, but you just got an inclination that even being blinded by arrogance, like what we're talking about with those instincts, like there's there, there is still a window from which the snake can strike, and that window... Like, if the window's not completely shut, then the window is open. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, it's just a great feud overall, and I really have to applaud them. In, a, in an era where 
a lot of feuds have become lazy. Like we said, like the Warrior Savage feud will be like, like they're going to see each other just a couple times. And then it's just, you know, kind of the little promos backstage. Um, and, you know, it is what it is. And it's just not, uh, you know, they're not even in the same space, it seems, a lot of the time. But in this feud, I looked for it. I couldn't find it. But there's all these, like, when Rick Martel is doing his squash matches on Superstars, on Challenge, whatever, during this time, Jake Roberts will sometimes come wandering out of the back. And I, I shouldn't say wandering. Uh, he doesn't hardly know where he is, but he's trying to find the ring. He knows Martel's going to be there. He tries to get in the ring. And, you know, most of the time he ends up DDT and the jobber just because he gets his hands on him first or even the referee or somebody. But he's coming down blind as a bat. And just because he knows it's a place he knows Martel is going to be, like he's going to shoot his shot for revenge before he's even really to take it. Uh, and it's just some great segments. So I, I love that stuff. I love this whole feud. It's just done extremely well. Yeah, that's this is an incredible storyline. Jake also has the crowd kind of guide him, and that's mm. going to be foreshadowing WrestleMania 7 as well. Oh, yeah. Um, again, arrogance versus stupidity <laughs> in an era where we're talking about voting on, like, objects and weapons and things. Like, I understand giving the stick to mock Jake Roberts and to help him but not help him. But you're also giving a stick to Jake Roberts. So, like, that's another <laughs> iffy choice. And then I just want to mention Vince McMahon because we don't talk as much about him since Jesse left. But, you know, uh, I think uh, Martel says the word humanitarian, not to Vince's. It's like humanitarian, he was trying to say. Uh, and then, <laughs> this guy's a creep. Well, <laughs> oh, Vince. <laughs> Uh, yes, still some good lines from Vince, but, uh, I think you really touched on something there. I have not paid much attention really to Vince since Jesse left and, uh, he is, he is hurting, I think without, uh, the better half of his combo because mm. Piper ain't it. We talked about that already. And Vince, you know, we've praised him at times. I think there are parts of his commentary, which are enjoyable, but man, like he is definitely the weak link, I think out of the original big four. <laughs> Absolutely. I have high, high praise. The way that we're going to talk about Shawn Michaels and Perfect, I have some announcing praise throughout the show, but it has nothing to do with Mr. Vince McMahon. <laughs> right you are. There's some much better teams that are going to come out here, so some good stuff. Um, next, we are going to talk about a couple of these uh, Randy Savage promos. I excluded Warrior promos because, by God, did you really think we were going to mm -hmm. listen to more Warrior promos than we had to? If you know us by now, you know it's not going to happen. So um, we get a couple of Savage promos. Uh, really, they're not too different, so I'm just going to talk about them both together. It's both Savage and Sherry, and uh, they're looking amazing. I got to shout out Sherry in the second one. has this amazing, like, bowler hat that just, like, on anybody else it probably wouldn't work. But, man, she just looks incredible at all times. Much love to Sherry. Much love to the aesthetic of this pairing, which is always on point. Uh, in both cases, Savage is really just talking about the Warrior and uh, his career. And he says it's a small career and Warrior has to live with the consequences of the choices he makes. Uh, it talks about how Warrior had a piece of the title, a piece of history. But Savage, he's the champion forever. He tells us he spends a lot of time looking down on the Warrior here. So both these promos are good in that kind of Randy Savage way that you expect. I think neither is amazing. Uh, in that it will blow your mind, but it's just some good stuff that will get you maybe in the right mindset for this big match that we're about to have. 
Yeah, Savage says, I am the WWF looking down on you. You mm. live in my shadow. Indeed, I feel like this yeah. whole feud, you can't say it like this, but it feels like Savage is judging the Warriors' lack of success in the in the role that only Savage has been able to have aside from Warrior. <laughs> yes, as the other to Hogan. Um, yeah, well, Savage's reign had his problems, and we talked about it at the time. But you've got to count it as a bigger success because WrestleMania five was very successful uh, and four as well as I recall. Although Savage was not initially maybe like the focus of that, but uh, even so, Savage had success in his reign that I think Warrior just did not have. And though they don't spell it out, that's interesting. Yeah, you may uh, you may be right on there talking about uh, Savage looking down on Warrior for that reason. Yeah, and the only other line that I love is he says. He's the greatest champion of all time, and that warrior, you're going to put your career as little as it is on the line. <laughs> I was just about to highlight that one as well. Yes, looking down on that little career of Ultimate Warrior. And you know what? Yeah, like comparatively, Warrior, his career is pretty small compared to most of these guys around here. So, oh, Warrior, the first guy who really did not have big success in territories. I know he was the... the the dingo kid or whatever stupid thing he was. But yeah, nothing like what a lot of these guys, the seasoning they had, the success they had before coming to the WWF. Unfortunately, we're really getting out of that era now where guys uh, kind of made their bones elsewhere. But uh, yeah, so a sign of the times for sure. Yeah, it's something prophetic because not only is he really bringing judgment indirectly, against the Warrior flaming out as world champion, but we also don't yet know the history that Warrior is going to soon be out of WWF. Randy Savage is going to be the future world champion and a multiple-time WCW champion. So although Warrior is going to retire Randy Savage, ironically, Randy Savage is casting a judgment on Warrior that will hold for the rest of his career. (laughs) Right you are, yes. More than once, Savage will be world champion again, I think. Wait, no. I'm going to have that wrong. No, there's there's one weird th- title changes in 92, but yeah, I think it's just the ones for him. But uh, ah, yeah, no, we're, we're coming up on some good Savage stuff. And man, if there was any good Warrior stuff, it's pretty much done already. We just got this Savage match and uh, they have another one in 92 that some people like a lot that I'm not really fond of. So I guess we'll look at that then. Um, it's funny when I was looking for like promos about this, I found a lot more promos about that match they will have in 1992, which is face versus face. So we'll have to examine that when it comes along, compare and contrast. But yeah, uh, there will be more history with these two. But uh, in many ways, Warriors history is already completed. So yeah, it'll be curious because I know a lot of 92 pay-per-views better by WWF magazine pictures than I do like the <laughs> actual pay-per-views. Sure. So. That one I've never heard much about. All I remember is Ric Flair trying to court both of them or, or plant seeds of you know paranoia in both of their minds. Yep, yep, very much so. And uh, and the Mega Maniacs, as they called themselves, and they had an ill-fated uh, tag team for a little while. So you'd think Savage would know not to get into any Mega tag teams anymore. But, um, you know, well, we'll see how it goes when we get there. I feel like he's trying to abuse Warrior the way that Hogan abuses him. <laughs> <laughs> you may be right, 
And I don't know if we could blame him. He's going to pass that on to somebody else, somebody who deserves it more. So we'll see. We'll see. It feels a lot like I'm bigger than you. You got to live in my shadow. Every time you come around, I'm going to take it. And, you know, <laughs> I was just thinking, like, yeah, he's a one-time WWF champion after this, but he's a multiple-time WCW. He's going to win the first three-ring 60-man World War Three. but Hogan went under the bottom rope, and they are best friends at the time, and Hogan's going to call him illegitimate from that night onward until he drops the belt. <laughs> you know, we couldn't have done it a different way, but, man, if we could have followed some of these narratives from WWF over to mm. WCW in a linear way, I think we would have been shocked even more than we were at how well they carry through and how these, these people never really change their relationships. So um, it's interesting stuff for sure. Yeah. And I, th I think just a note, they did that, some of that and successfully without Vince McMahon and WWF having anything to do with it. Very true. Very true. Oh boy. All right. Now we're going to get into uh, some more of my really just absolute favorite stuff. We're going to talk yes. about Virgil and DiBiase. We have a number of promos that are going to help set this feud up. Uh, the first one is just uh, jumping back a little before the Royal Rumble. I really wanted to get uh, at least one of these promos where Ted DiBiase really starts kind of messing with Virgil, making him do stuff that he didn't have to do before, and uh, just pushing him to the breaking point. So this one, he and Virgil are out at a stable. Ted gets a promo about Dusty Rhodes. Um, who, who we will not see again, sadly, but uh, making fun of him and then uh, comparing the smell of the stables to him and just running him down. In the end, Ted DiBiase steps on some manure and he makes Virgil clean it off his boot. I'll say this is one of the best ones, the only one that got me more. We'll see a brief clip of later where Virgil had to like rub in between the toes of Ted DiBiase. Yeah. And just, uh, like if that doesn't tell you why, <laughs> Virgil... Broke away from this guy. Oh, man. These vignettes are amazing, and they are uh, to the credit of our prof, I think it was, who, who called uh, Ted DiBiase one of the true MVPs of this era. Yeah, this is uh, – I think it's so important that you chose this because cleaning the boot is going to be continually referenced throughout the rest of this uh, storyline as well. Yeah. DiBiase's filling himself as usual. He talks about everything's bigger in Texas, yet his bank account is bigger than Texas. So <laughs> DiBiase, and this is, again, we have to remind you, this is a feud that DiBiase is going to win in a handicap style. So, like, mm, yeah. when DiBiase's not thriving, he's too much to bear. So what do you think he's like right now? And it's not like he has a whole cast of people serving him. He only has Virgil. So imagine like collecting all the Ted DiBiase abuse. Like outside of being Hulk Hogan's best friend, there might not be a more difficult role in the WWF. <laughs> well said. Very well said. No, yeah, Ted DiBiase. Um, we know that uh, he'll sacrifice anything to prove his point, and uh, he, he's definitely laying it hard on Virgil here. We will see the outcome of that at the Royal Rumble when it goes too far. And even better, we will see the effect it will have on the crowd because even before Virgil does anything to Ted DiBiase, before he raises his hand, we will hear those Virgil chants. And I love that. And I think that is just a sign of how well they set up this storyline. Yeah. This is also WWF at its best because it might be a little hokey to some. It might be this, that, or the other. But when they would do character-based storylines outside of the ring, inside of locations, like they knew how to cut this kind of uh, segment and to do it right. Oh, 
Yes, yes, really well done stuff here. I gotta give all praise to that. Um, so we have the Royal Rumble. Virgil finally stands up to Ted DiBiase uh, to a great reaction. And here's where we get into the nitty-gritty, because uh, Roddy Piper, of all people, gets involved in this storyline. Um, he, he kind of befriends Virgil. He's going to teach him how to fight, how to wrestle. Um, and it's crazy. I, <laughs> it, when Piper comes to WCW in 1996, Virgil is in the, the NWO at that point. He kind of threatens him, and Piper taught him, hey, I taught you how to fight. And, like, that didn't mean anything to me at the time, but, man, like, it means a lot now. So, like, that that's a great connection. I got to give praise for that for just a second here. Man, I would have never thought about that, so I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> Good continuity. If, if WCW had any continuity, they knew WWF history. <laughs> oh, very true. Although I think for that one, I want to give credit just to Piper himself, you know. Yeah. Piper's a guy who... For better or worse, I feel like he always kind of went in 100%, and he did try to make these connections. Sometimes they worked. Sometimes, like, they only worked in his head. They didn't work anywhere yeah. else. But when they worked, they worked so well. So I'm very happy to get into some uh, positive Piper stuff. We've been down on his commentary, but I think he's brilliant in this feud. Uh, in this first promo, we have Okerlund bringing out Piper and Virgil uh, to the platform. Um, Piper wants to talk to Virgil about human rights, but the difference of being a friend and a fool. And he shows Virgil, hey, a friend, a friend might shine a boot for you if your back hurts, if you need the help, you know, if they ask nicely. But then he fires him up about not taking orders. He gets him to reject some, some example orders that he gives to him. And I just got to say, Piper's so good. Virgil is good. I give credit to him as well. And the crowd, the crowd is so into this they are so invested in this and it's just it's a great sign of how well this feud was executed here i i, I love these promos that we're going to talk about there's something i think especially think about the whole concept of the boys like wrestlers who travel together who have pain together who probably have addictions together <laughs> like you can't live without each other and you know you think about things, unfortunately, like when the Owen Hart Austin thing happened, like yeah. it's almost impossible to ever mend. Like that's, it's the one thing you can't do. And so you got this guy who has been around the business, but not in the business. Like he is not in the business. He is unfortunately an extension of Ted DiBiase. And so if you think in poor storytelling, he could have just, I guess, turned baby face and then all of a sudden known how to like oh yeah everything i know everything now because the storyline but you know it's a weird place to be in if you're virgil because like this is a man i don't know if it's because of his family or what but he needs this money and i don't think he ever planned in his lifetime to leave dibiase so then you leave dibiase who is going to target you and try to ruin you mm. and i love the idea when i was listening to you talk about it the fact that like for these wrestlers, they probably help each other in a lot of ways. So like, if you build this relationship and you ask nicely, like I even getting down, I've got no business. I got no problem even like shining your boot. I got no problem helping you, you know, in ways that people might not imagine. You know, you see it all the time when Dusty Rhodes was in that feud with Ted DiBiase. Hacksaw Jim Duggan walks into the screen, and you know Hacksaw's been looking for a sapphire. Because yeah. Dusty Rhodes needs to find Sapphire. And I, I'm not much of a babyface fan. 
so like usually I would debate this, but they I'm not back there with them. But this is one time I have to give credit. Like they're trying to show you, like you're on the other side of the narrative line, and there are good people over here and people that will do a lot for you. You know, let me try to show you a landscape that is actually built on something other than what you've experienced with Ted DiBiase. That's a great way to look at it. We, we've talked how baby faces at times can really just appear uh, selfish on close examination. We've talked about how heels can surprise you and be very supportive of each other. But, hey, you know, like, <laughs> it's funny. When, when you look as hard at the counter narrative as we do, and I think it's justified to look so hard at it, but sometimes there are aspects of the normal narrative that maybe yes. actually have some weight to them. So this was a great way to illustrate that i love what you said there because yeah like this is a purely baby face motion i think and uh that's something we don't even really see very often but it it, it just comes across so well here i do appreciate that yeah because it's more than shining the boot he's going to teach him the great baby face narrative of the late 80s early 90s <laughs> is when to tell someone to stick it in their nose which is anytime you feel like it very much if you're a baby face <laughs> You I know. did think of that part as well. Yes, he taught him uh, a little babyface privilege where you can uh, just sort of <laughs> lash out whenever you feel it's justified, and the crowd will cheer you for it. And... Man, they should go deep into that, like Virgil being like, "But, but no, but you can't just do that because like, like we're good guys," and like, and just <laughs> having like painstakingly teaching him babyface privilege. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, so this is a very good segment. Uh, we go on to another one. We have a special report on this feud. Uh, we watch a little clip of the Rumble, and then we see a clip of Virgil wrestling Haku on an episode of Superstars. Uh, we see Roddy Piper distracting Haku and Virgil winning by roll-up, which has to be seen as an enormous upset. Uh, I love we have D.B. Bossy and Heenan at ringside, and they are flipping out about this. And I love that Heenan and Haku... Like, Hina just ushers Haku away right away. It's like, well, whatever. We did what we paid for. We don't really care about the rest of this. So uh, perhaps showing a little uh, ultimate heelish behavior as well, if you prefer. Uh, Ted DiBiase throws a fit about this whole scenario. And we see Piper and Virgil uh, doing a clip together. And we see Piper now on crutches, had a motorcycle accident around this time, and yet uh, powering through this storyline still, which I have to give him credit for as well. Um, he will be at WrestleMania with Virgil, and this feud uh, continues to to bubble along here. Yeah, he's also one of the only people in WWF as obnoxious as Ted DiBiase. <laughs> you know, so I think when you put them together, like DiBiase, it's more than I think DiBiase's bargained for. Oh yes, I would have to think so. <laughs> I mean, this whole feud is like an insult to him because this whole feud is out to like prove that his his mantra you know his life story is a falsehood because because in dibiase land this never should have been able to happen like virgil should have uh you know put up with anything he, he decided to throw at him so this plus piper being in his face and man you don't ever want piper in your face for a number of reasons like this whole thing has to offend him a lot and i think we're going to see that in the next promo here yeah, he's going to try to play it off, but again, I think Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Hulk Hogan, Piper, DiBiase, there's a handful of guys that if they can just act cool one time when you're antagonizing them, they've done the best that they can. <laughs> like twice, <laughs> it's not happening. Yep, yeah, 
for some of these guys, you're lucky if you get half your first sentence out, and they might hit you with a two by four. Yeah. So you know. <laughs> and don't mm. mention where you're from if it's not America. So. No. <laughs> oh boy! So we get this last promo, and this I think is a real good one. Uh, Roddy Piper comes out to the platform again. He's on his crutches. He's going to call out Ted DiBiase. And he's going to interview him. So DiBiase comes out. DiBiase uh, makes fun of his injury. Piper makes fun of DiBiase in the way he looks. They go back and forth with some nice lines. Uh, Piper taunts DiBiase about all the things Virgil used to do for him, and now he has to do these things for himself. He's got to wipe his own brow. He's got to massage his own feet. We see some of those nice clips of Virgil doing these ridiculous things for him. And maybe my favorite line of this is Piper says, looks like you got a whole bunch of money, but you ain't got no friends. Mm -hmm. And, like, man, that... For a guy like Piper, and, you know, Piper was a jerk a lot of the time. He probably didn't have a lot of friends either sometimes in his career. But, man, it just felt it felt very right for Piper to call out Ted DiBiase this way. Because good or bad, these guys, I think, couldn't be farther apart. No, I think you're so right. Because they're, they're going to trade a lot of shots that are going to be punches to the ego. Mm. But I think he landed a punch on the human being Ted DiBiase in that statement. <laughs> I think, yeah, no, he did. Um, he, <laughs> You've got him. A guy is self-assured of Ted DiBiase, probably, you know, as a character, doesn't have a lot of time for self-doubt. But you got to wonder, is there ever a time where he's lying in bed in his mansion in his, like, silk pajamas sometimes, and the house is probably just empty except for, like, his servants? Does he ever wonder in the dead of night? if he really does have the right philosophy about life. I don't know, but if he does, I think Piper definitely scored a hit on that very small part of his soul right there. It's also interesting that he is a Vince McMahon character and that, and that comment landed so well. <laughs> I mean, when you're right, you're right. Um, <laughs> that whole thing adds a different level of psychology to this that I don't even know how to talk about sometimes. It's like... There's an awareness and yet not an awareness. So I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know how to take it sometimes here. It's also Vince was often friends with the top guy because, you know, they had a lot more invested. There's a lot more conversation. Mm. And I think about guys like he was close with Hogan and they had a falling out. He was close to Andre. They had a falling out. He was close to Brett. They had a falling out, you know. So the few guys that we know that he kind of was close with, it always seemed like there's this inability for it to last mm, yeah and just like i'm not saying that this comment has anything directly to do with him but i think it it lands in a way that makes you like there's very few things that can make you sad for tv the character of vince mcmahon but like i think there is something that is sad in that and again there's going to be piper who's going to say 17 things and 16 could be stupid and just like trying to needle you but one out of those 17 then is going to weirdly just like stick and stay <laughs> yeah you're probably right and uh, to your point i mean austin rock all had uh, big problems with vince began at different times and were really uh, estranged even if they patched it up later uh savage of course is a big mm. one um you know, got Ultimate Warrior, obviously, but he had problems with everyone, so we'll leave that one aside. Um, but, yeah, there's hardly any big guy that Vince didn't have uh, major problems with at some point, even if it's just guys. Even, like, Teddy Biasim himself will run off to WCW um, to do kind of almost nothing, you know, but he'll go yeah. out there anyway, and, you know, that can't have sat well. 
between them. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting stuff. And... Yeah, I think Piper's also bringing Virgil back because mm. when Hercules, I think this is true of Vince, but also we'll come back to the few definitely true of DiBiase. When DiBiase's done with you, you're kind of just done. Like you know, he should not have to keep dealing with Virgil. He should not have to keep dealing with Hercules. Mm. And so like Roddy Piper's also serving this way of like DiBiase has an underhanded comment about Virgil. He's like, well, let's. Let's say it to his face. Let's bring Virgil out. And you know, I think in Ted DiBiase's mind, like, I'm, I'm done with this. Like, why does this keep recurring? But, mm. you know, this is one time DiBiase's not going to be able to get away. And the fact that it's after four years, it's just, I think that gives power to the storyline. Oh, absolutely. The length of time. I mean, we talked about Jake and Martel playing out over months, which is brilliant. But, yeah, this this relationship DiBiase and Virgil, this goes back to day one in the WWF in 1987, so yeah, the fact that it's paying off here, and paying off so well, man, when you put in that kind of legwork, you're gonna get these great crowd reactions, and the crowd just adores this storyline, so I gotta give all credit to that. Um, Back in the promo, Ted DiBiase uh, has a good scoring point of his own. Because he says Piper is great at running his big mouth, but he never thinks about what he's doing. He talks about, hey, you've built up Virgil's hopes so much, but you're just leading him to a slaughter. He can't win this match. I'm just going to take him apart. And and it's a great point. And I think maybe you can even see a little doubt in Piper's eyes when he says that. And uh, maybe maybe so, maybe not. But it, it it's a good point, I think, on Ted's side. Yeah, I love that. And I'm a... I actually will praise Vince McMahon one time later because he'll do it too. But there's a couple of times that some of these people remember that they've been with each other throughout the 80s, you know. Yeah. And that this is one of them. So this is what we love on this show is what you're good at, you're good at. And what you're not good at, you're not good at. And sometimes it can be the same thing. And that Roddy Piper, he can stir something up. Like he can, he can probably even take it further than even Virgil maybe was going to take it. But he's never gonna know what the consequence is. Like he's not. Like he's he's gonna be like back in the announce booth, and other people will still be dealing with the consequences. So DiBiase yeah. kind of lets him know, like if you want to get personal, you know me and I know you. So we but we could do this all day if we want to. Oh, absolutely. So um, it, it's a very nice dynamic. Um, it, uh, Virgil does come out to the platform. Um, and this is the part, maybe this is my favorite part of this whole thing, is that just look, if you watch this, just look at Ted DiBiase's face as this is going on, and especially as Virgil comes out and Virgil kind of like speaks out against him. He says he's got to kick his butt at WrestleMania pretty much, and that's almost all he says, but Ted looks so furious, so like coldly offended and furious <laughs> and like this is not what life is supposed to be like and how dare this even happen to me and just the indignant feelings oh god he just communicates so much with the look on his face and man just Ted DiBiase is a top top level guy I gotta give lots of praise to him oh man this is this is the best run it's weird because I think DiBiase and Jake both I have enjoyed more and more as it's going on. So Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't know what to say about things like that, except just that I think they deserve the highest praise in the world because if you just went off of am I always on the upward trajectory, then it wouldn't be like that. But they have just – they are who they are and how they are despite whatever they're doing. Yeah, no, absolutely so. And uh, Ted DiBiase in some ways is kind of like – 
uh, proving an exception to my rule that you're always best when you're coming up because he, mm. he is now peaking in his WWF character uh, kind of after the fact. So uh, I give a lot of praise to that as well. It's very easy to coast. I think it would have been easy for Ted to phone it in after uh, how well he came off in his initial appearances and the big push he got. But, man, like he just kept pushing for some of his best work even years after he had fallen out of the title picture. Yeah. I think Virgil reminds me a little bit of, like, for anybody who's played JRPGs, mm. if you ever have a character in your party who's, if you put them in battle, they're not very fast and they don't, they're not very this and that, but they, they carry like a heavy axe and every time they land a blow, it's like three or four times higher uh, than the other <laughs> characters. You know, he reminds me of someone who, he's going to have awkward moments, he's not always going to be the best, but he also, like, he is like he's he's big and built and he's got this determination right now and you know if I was watching this match and this was in real time I would think of three out of four ways DiBiase would beat him and then there would be one way that he would beat DiBiase and it would be a, a, like a sure thing <laughs> No that's a great uh way to look at it I could definitely see that as well and uh, I will also say the way they use the uh, Virgil in these promos and uh, even in these matches, like it is just so well executed. It puts me in mind of, of taking Andre when he didn't have a lot left and putting him in that tag team where he only had to do a few things. that was the things he could still do that he was still good at. It's that same kind of thing. It's so much like maximize what you've got and like hide the weaknesses. I think they do a brilliant job of that with Virgil here. I do think Virgil is more talented than he gets credit for, but we know he has limitations. The way they play this out uh, in the promos, in the matches, it is just like absolutely to maximize the benefit of this feud. And it's just, it's exceedingly well done, I think. Yeah, there's a difference between Paul Roma trying to be a four horseman with all the character that goes in it and trying to be one half of power and glory. Yes, yeah. No, Virgil is in like the perfect role at this time and they just they just handle it so well. So I got to give credit. This is one of my favorite feuds of this whole era and uh, we're only going to get deeper in it as we go along here. Yeah. I'm getting excited. So WrestleMania 7 is I haven't really had a feeling one way or the other, but after doing the Jake conversation, Martel and then the DiBiase Virgil, man, starting to get excited for WrestleMania 7. I think it is a very exciting show. You know, it's got that main event attached, which, uh, you know, I didn't look for build on it. We know what it is. We've seen too much build already yeah, for this stupid much. match. So we're not going to talk that much more about it until we have to. But, uh, yeah, apart from that, like, it's a very strong WrestleMania, actually. It starts off with uh, the Rockers against Haku and Barbarian. And if you don't think that's exciting, I don't know what I can possibly tell you. And then, yeah, it's got a lot of great story matches attached and just uh, a lot of fun stuff on this card. So I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a good one. Yeah, I hope there'll be some good promos backstage with Gene because <laughs> it is a lot of character-built stuff. Um, we're moving into the era. Like, this is the last pay-per-view before I start watching WWF. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, like, I know what the setting looks like backstage in pay-per-views in this era. Like, I really like it. Uh -huh. I can see Boss Man back there. I can see DiBiase back there. So we got a lot of good stuff. And I said this last week or the week before last. Uh, Ric Flair, I think, needs to be very grateful that DiBiase didn't get just a little bit better than he's already gotten because we're, we are getting close to the point that we don't even need Ric Flair. So, And uh, we obviously, like, 
there's a million reasons why it's going to be important when he gets here. So don't take that too literally, but I'm just giving praise to Ted DiBiase. Absolutely. And I know what you're saying. I mean, at the end of the day, Ric Flair is above and beyond. And I think uh, we would all have to admit that. But God, DiBiase, he's just so good and he fills a similar role. So I, I totally get what you're saying there. Yeah, he's coming into something. And I'm glad we get Flair because it's, it's historical. And I will try to gather up the context of how I've been watching wrestling for two or three months and somehow Flair going to WWF felt the same way then as it would now. Like I, so I didn't even need the knowledge of wrestling history to know that I was watching something that wasn't supposed to happen, mm. you know? And so it's just enormous for that reason. But at the same time, what I'm saying, DiBiase is such a great heel. Like you can't see DiBiase sliding a chair into the ring and, and Undertaker tombstone and Hogan and him losing the belt, <laughs> you know? DiBiase is getting out of pocket as far as his talent. So I think they need to bring Flair in just so they can remind DiBiase that they have no plans for him to go higher than he's going to go. Uh, it's sad when you say it like that, but you may be uh, <laughs> onto something. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. No, I can picture it a little too well. Um All right. So, yeah, that kind of covers uh, our, our promo segment. We do have, uh, let me see, we have six matches, I think that we're going to cover here. Uh, matches just picked from between the last time we did a bonus episode and now we got our first one coming up uh, in December 15. Uh, WWF Superstars is Mr. Perfect taking on the Texas Tornado, Kerry Von Erich, for that Intercontinental title belt, which at this time the Tornado still held, but that is uh, going to turn around. And it's going to be in part thanks to the help of a guy that we were just praising, Ted DiBiase is going to be here. This is, I guess, a little bit of a lost feud for him because I forgot that this happened, but he did have his own conflict, I guess, with the Texas Tornado. He's going to have his hand in this matchup as well. Yeah, there are wonderful details in this thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely so. Um, Ted DiBiase comes out, and uh, we're told he's a special guest ring announcer, and oh, Piper and Vince, they didn't know about this. They, they're they very surprised. And then uh, we see the reason, and this is a great touch, because uh, Ted DiBiase will slip some money into the pocket of Howard Finkel, and we will mm. return to Finkel a few times. And uh, there's just there's, there's some very nice details in that aspect of the match. I love that so much. And this is where I'm praising Vince McMahon, who says, after all these years, I'm, you know, I'm amazed that Fink would do this. <laughs> This is great. We know that Finkel and Vince had a, a unique relationship. Finkel was like his first employee or what have you and uh, stayed with the company until he passed, I think. So you've got to imagine Vince enjoyed having like something that he could give Finkel to do beyond his normal role. And he does it very well. Like Finkel is just a very um, there's something about him, you know, like there's something special there. Yeah. Then they, they have to bring the belt out to the uh, ring announcer table and they give it to Ted DiBiase instead of Howard Finkel. And Bobby Heenan says to Fink, you made your money. You can leave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a great little piece of interaction there. Uh, this is very good stuff. Um, One more because there's just so much. But DiBiase holds that IC title. This is a man who had his own belt made and it's almost outside of the other titles. And he just holds it and looks at it. And I couldn't tell you if he's thinking like, 
this belt is not made out of what my own belt is made out of, or, or this is what an actual title feels like and what it would be like to be an actual champion. But like he's having an intimate moment with that championship uh, at ringside. He is. He is. Uh, if I remember right, he will have a real title uh, eventually. So that, that is uh, something that he will live out if he is thinking that. But yeah, I can, I can totally see him looking at that and being like, Oh, look at this tacky piece of crap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is not, this is a poor person's title. I don't need this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, so I think this is a very fun match. I think this is more fun than the one they had at SummerSlam. Uh, something about it just clicks on a higher level to me. Maybe it's the, uh, kind of extra layers or maybe, uh, it's just the way the action plays out. But, uh, I think this match is very fun. Um, of course, the way Mr. Perfect moves in there is just really special. Uh, I think uh, Kerry does a, a fine job for his part. Uh, it's a very fun match. I, I think it was worth going back to check out. Yeah, DiBiase's going to get involved. He'll, uh, at one point, Tornado misses Perfect and hits his shoulder on the corner, and DiBiase just comes over and gives him a whack and then sits down like he's the most disinterested person in the world. <laughs> Yeah, DiBiase playing it very well uh, for his part, getting that little bit of involvement. And I got to say, how great is it that DiBiase and Bobby Heenan will continue to have these connections, that they go back all the way to uh, Ted DiBiase's earliest stuff in the company, that partnership with Andre the Giant and Bobby Heenan, and having that relationship. Uh, We will see them, you know, Heenan will will lend him Haku, to fight against Virgil. We saw a clip of that as well. They're here together again. Um, they just have this great recurring relationship that I think is really just wonderful. Yeah, I think in a world where you can't trust anybody not to turn heel or face, they had kind of realized this is about as close as you can get to relying on someone staying on this side of the line. <laughs> yep, their their interests line up very well. Bobby Heenan wants money more than anything, and Ted wants uh, people who will take his money more than anything, you know, and prove his philosophy correct. So they are very well made for each other here. Mm. Man, that, yeah, but yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because you can't love the 80s and what we've covered and not be amused or or touched, however you want to look at it, by the fact that they're still doing business together. Absolutely. I love all these connections, which are not... Like, it will never be the focus of a storyline. Even with Andre, like, Heenan sort of took a back step, and it wasn't about DiBiase and Heenan collaborating specifically, and yet it's there in the background. It's a piece of consistency. It's a piece of world-building. It's a piece of the lore of this era. And, man, the more of that you have, I think the better off that you will be, especially for a fan like me, because I'm always on a lookout for that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't want... Judge Tornado one way or the other. Cause I don't think he did bad, but like one thing I noted, he never felt rooted to me. Like they, in the world, though, like exactly what you're just talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, he kind of came in like his gimmick, you know, where he touched down, he calls havoc. But like I was watching him, I was like, I don't really know your motivations for why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, it's strange. He became an Intercontinental Champion, but I felt like they never put very much into uh, the Texas Tornado. Um, And you could almost be forgiven for thinking Mr. Perfect was just the champion all the way through this, Mm -hmm. because he never really goes away from the belt. You know, he'll take it back here. And uh, I think if you think of the Intercontinental title in this era, you'll just think of Mr. Perfect. You're definitely not going to think of Texas Tornado. Yeah, and with a career that is cut shorter than it should have been. Yeah. Like the one thing I will never regret is how much perfect we're watching because this is an iconic 
Mr. Perfect was in a lot of ways Bret Hart before Bret Hart's going to become Bret Hart. Yeah. I was thinking, I'll, I'll talk about this maybe a little more in the Shawn Michaels match, but man, if you lined up in 1991, Bret Hart, Mr. Perfect, and Shawn Michaels, and you asked me, which of these guys do you want to go on and be world champion? God, I don't know. I might go with Mr. Perfect. You know, it's tight competition between the three of them. Yeah, it's weird because I think as far as establishing themselves, you would go with Perfect because he's built something. Like he, Not only is he built, like he's grown up in his body and his skills. Like He's an adult. I think Sean is not yet. Even though he's so good, he's not yet even close to his fullness. Yeah. And then I think Brett, I think it would be for me right now if I was in that era, Perfect would be the obvious one for me. Michaels would be the... I think this guy's just got a lot of talent, and Bret Hart would weirdly be the third for me, even though I think Bret's further along than Michaels. <laughs> That's just how I would rank it personally. I, I think you have something. I think let's revisit this maybe around uh, the time of SummerSlam, because I think Bret Hart is really about to start exploding into kind of his own fullness. Yeah. So that story may change quickly. But, yeah, like talking about here uh, very early in the year, I think you're probably just about right about that. And he's coming along leaps and bounds. Like it's just an episode where he's not on it, and that's what this is what happens when you get a lot of talent dissimilar. Like Brett's not on this show, so Brett Hart gets to be third. You know, that's just the way it works. <laughs> yeah, no, it changes quickly with such high level of uh, of competition here. So it's very good stuff. Um, in this match, we get a ref bump. Uh, Tornado takes Perfect into the corner, and I, I really, man, I could watch all day, I think, when Perfect, like, bounces out of the corner, and he, like, turns around and flips forward, and, man, yeah. maybe that's over the top for some people, but I could watch that all day, I think. I love it. And it fits even better for Perfect, because Perfect's not like Michaels and others in that Perfect is also this kind of rugged, almost 6'8 guy with his attitude, so then it's, it's, it's contradictory in a good way when he can also get, like, pushed around like that at times. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, there's nobody quite like Mr. Perfect, for sure. Um, and it's so nice that he was paired with Heenan, because Heenan is one of the guys who would also do, like, these big bumps. And, um, I don't know, there's just some weird, great synergy there that I appreciate. Um, Texas Tornado hits his punch, and I gotta say, Perfect sells it so well without even bumping. He just kind of, like, stiffens up and yes. freezes and slowly falls over. And, God, it looks great, so... That's a nice I moment as that well. Too. That, it, it is so beautiful. Like I really feel like he got knocked out. He's knocked out on his feet, and he just has to fall. <laughs> no, it's great stuff. It's so good. Uh, Tanner tries to get the pin, but the ref is still down. Ted gets in the, uh, the ring and hits him in the head with that Intercontinental title belt. Perfect plex. Title comes back to Mr. Perfect. It goes back to the place, as you already said, that it should have always. Not even should have, because... I'm not mad at Texas Tornado being champion, but it, the place that you kind of, if you if you blink, you think Perfect hell it the whole time. And so, to me, Perfect's still the same guy who smashed the WWF title, and just because we didn't give the attention to it and the storyline it deserved, like, Perfect's still on that level, and because Brett's going to take off, and then he's going to be IC champion until he's world champion, then Sean's going to come up. They have such... Uh, distinct errors because it's going to lift them up to higher places. Perfect's not going to get that, so we need to be very clear, as I said, that just like we're going to be in a Brett era and be in a Sean era, we are in the Mr. Perfect era right now. Yeah, no, it really feels that way, especially in terms of like the in-ring stuff. He's he's up there, I think, with the hottest guys that we're talking about in the company, yeah. with DiBiase, with Big Boss Man, um, you know, and yes. 
uh, he he's invested too in one of these great storylines because he's got this thing going on with Big Boss Man and it's going to pay off again at WrestleMania in a great match in my opinion. Uh, but he's also out here having great matches with just anybody. Look at the variety. We're going to watch three Mr. Perfect matches. It's be Texas Tornado, Roddy Piper, and Shawn Michaels. And these are three very different talents. And I think he's going to have great matches with all of them. So he is just like a top tier talent around this time. Yeah, it is. He's not in all the promos and the story-driven stuff, but every time we go to a matchup, like we said, we got we got what six matches, and he's in three of them today. <laughs> yeah, as I looked for uh, for the stuff from this period, he just came up again and again. Like, ooh, I want to see that match. Ooh, I want to see that match. Ooh, I want to see that match. Like, he's just a very very special talent that you want to go out of your way to see. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we go to uh, the very end of December, December 28th, in Madison Square Garden. And as I mentioned, is Mr. Perfect defending that Intercontinental Championship against Roddy Piper, a man who, funny enough, in about a year, is going to be holding that title. Um, and that's not a title you really associate with Roddy Piper, but he's getting a shot here, maybe a little bit of uh, foreshadowing or what have you. But uh, very interesting stuff. I've got Monsoon and Alfred Hayes on commentary, which is always very nice as well. And we are all set for this matchup. Yeah, so this one's going to be more of a street fight. I think it's going to be Roddy Piper driven. Um, Lord Alfred Hayes is going to get hot. I think before Perfect starts matching, cheating for cheating, Alfred Hayes is going to get hot at how much uh, Roddy Piper's breaking the rules and the ref is watching him and not doing anything about it. <laughs> yeah, they spent a lot of time uh, talking about Piper's cheating in this match. He will poke eyes. Uh, he will take cheap shots. He will use a chair even. He will do it first. And, uh, right in Hayes, front of the ref, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The ref uh, gives him a lot of leeway here until he doesn't. We'll talk about that at the end. But, um, yeah, Hayes and Monsoon definitely marvel at how, uh, quote-unquote, effective piper is at breaking the rules it's funny they don't bring that up when uh when the heels do it but you know that it just is what it is so yeah absolutely oh good stuff so yeah this is somewhat piper driven it starts off with piper doing like a barrage of punches and man i'll say piper he always had those punches you know he had that kind of wild energy that i think makes a spot like that work really well perfect is driven back until he almost bumps down on top of monsoon and Hayes. Because they're at their table at ringside. And I'll just say again, whenever somebody bumps on or near that table where everybody's sitting at, I get a pop for that. Yeah, these are guys who you almost just think of them as voices. Like you don't think of them as actually being in the building. But, you know, a disturbance. I don't even know if Gorilla Monsoon will sell a disturbance or not. He will later in his career because he's got some things coming to him. But oh, not yes. right now. <laughs> for sure. It's great because... These guys, like, their table is, like, pushed up against the ring. And if you've watched mm. old shows, you've probably seen that. In time, they will put these guys in safer places. They will be, like, back by the crowd or even all the way back by the entrance. You know, they will be in a place where they're not in danger. But here, we're still in a time where, like, you don't expect a guy to bump out of the ring this way. And yet here, they've got guys almost falling on their heads at times. So it's just exciting. It's like it feels like a thing that shouldn't is not supposed to happen. And when it does happen, it always kind of gets a pop from me. Yeah, Dusty would have loved to be there. <laughs> yep, you'll be bouncing out of his chair uh, very close to this time with Vader and Hanson fighting over in WCW. Yep. 
Man, I still love that. Oh, uh, it's great. It's one of my strongest memories. How many years ago do you think we we first covered that? And here we are. We're still talking about it. You know, that's great stuff uh, right there. When was that? Would that have been <laughs> around 16 or 17, maybe? Probably, yeah. Very close to when we started uh, the first Legacy series. So, that, you know, that's a long time. That's four or five years at least since we covered that and we're still talking about it. Yeah, you can't not. That's just... It's so strange. It's so out of out of out of place, and yet Dusty's there just eating it up like like a kid. And Jim Ross is horrified. <laughs> Jim Ross knows he's in danger. He's not ready to uh, you yeah. know lose his life at a young age. So <laughs> I would have been Jim Ross. So I I am not saying anything about that. <laughs> oh man, I don't know if I quite would have been Dusty because I think he wanted to go in and make it a three way match, but uh, yeah. I would have been happy to lose my chair to this fight. I have lost my chair to wrestling matches at independent shows. So sure, bring it on. I'll be there. Nice. What a world what a world you live in. <laughs> I've never lost a chair to a professional wrestler. <laughs> oh my, it's quite an experience, I can tell you. Um returning to the match. This is a great thing. This is maybe a small thing, but uh I saw a spot that I don't often see. Mr. Perfect uh, will get drug around the match, by, or drug around the ring by his hair. And this mm. is a spot I saw him do with Big Boss Man. I was like, okay, well, Big Boss Man, he's just strong enough that he can do it. And Piper does it. I don't think a Piper is that strong. And I look at Perfect, and I'm like, how the hell is he doing this? Because he's, like, gliding around the ring on his knees, and it shouldn't be possible for him to do this. And it's just another, like, example a Mr. Perfect breaking the laws of physics, I think, to have a great wrestling match. <laughs> yeah, unless you just like saying he's Mr. Perfect, there's no reason to ask questions like that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, uh, the match fills uh, to ringside. It gets pretty wild. Piper tears Mr. Perfect's gear, which will also happen with Bret Hart at SummerSlam. I am now wondering if Mr. Perfect, like, brought terrible gear on purpose to like bring uh weight to the match i always thought it was an accident but how many times can it happen before like maybe it's not an accident so that's a little tidbit that i uncovered right there yeah and perfectly partly he like he's a, he he loves to rip people you know yep he's a he's a detail i i can see him like wanting to have certain things happen we'll get into more clothing things um when we get to Shawn michaels so <laughs> This will not be the only conversation that I'll be having on this. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. Um, we get perfect with some uh, Terry Funkish selling at one point, which I really want to shout out. He's doing, like, the wild strikes and, like, the slow falling over as he's trying to get to Piper. That's top stuff. Um, Piper goes down hard off uh, an exposed turnbuckle that he gets run into, and as he's down, Mr. Perfect takes control. He does a great job. We talked about his viciousness before. I got to shout out a very simple move that I think people don't think about much. It always pops me. I love when a guy is, like, crawling on the mat and the other guy runs up and kicks him in the ribs. Like, mm. it's such a simple thing. But, man, that is, like, the perfect attack you can make on somebody, I think. Because you think about, like, the foot and the way it, like, hits against that rib cage. I don't know. I just got to shout that out a minute because that's a great move. And they do it to perfection here, I think. Nice. Lex Luger used to do that. I don't know if that was his heel world title run in WCW, but there was a time when he used to do that where it, yeah. it just like not flipping the guy. And it's, it's, 
like you think about how exposed you are in a situation like that, it it it, it makes a lot of sense and it, it looks vicious too. It does, yeah. It's a great move. That I think uh, all heels should have in their repertoire for yeah. sure. Um, so uh, perfect returns the favor with the chair. He jabs Piper in the chin with a chair. Um, and again, I think the referee probably even saw it. He's just letting a lot of stuff go in here. Uh, this is a great showing for Piper as well. We haven't talked about him as much, but he, he does awesome selling. He has awesome energy in this. I, I do have to praise Pi- Piper's performance. This is probably one of the better in-ring showings that I've seen from Piper. It's very good stuff. I'm interested to see. Uh, who does Piper, does Piper beat perfect for the belt or someone else? Uh, Piper beats the Mountie. Uh, oh, the Mountie. His incredibly okay. short-lived reign. I knew I didn't remember. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested Perfect's gone by then, Piper sadly. Beat. So we got perfect. Who's perfect? Drop this belt to. Uh, Bret Hart at SummerSlam. That's right. They have a does Bret Hart drop match. the Mountie? Uh, yes, he does. Um, and there's Ooh. some some <laughs> conflict about why that happens. So we will talk about that okay. as we get to that. So. <laughs> Man, I'm excited. This is I've been looking forward to this run of the IC title and. All of it sounds, some of it sounds weird and some of it sounds great, but all of it sounds intriguing right now. <laughs> yeah, I think we have uh, a great run because it's going to be, um, what is it, perfect to Brett, to Mountie, to Piper, back to Brett, to Bulldog, and beyond. And then we're going to get some really interesting stuff. I think maybe Sean, maybe after that, I can't remember. Sean takes it off Bulldog. Yeah, yeah. So then we're into Sean, and man, yeah, it's so nice to have this Intercontinental title. Like, I look back on the days of Honky Tonk Man and Ultimate Warrior, and man, mm. like, we praised a lot in those 87 days, but man, I would take this icy title run over that one in a heartbeat, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that wrestling-wise, one of the only things that's really popping consistently is the IC title, and in the best of WWF times, that was the only thing that you almost wanted to just jump past. <laughs> yeah, no, they had a very different idea of that title for a while, which is why I kind of mocked it being like the workhorse belt, because for a while it was anything but. But now we're getting back into that time, you know, that savage steamboat, Valentine, Tito Santana energy of that belt, where we've got just some top tier guys fighting over it. So I, I'll definitely give a lot of credit to this uh, run of the IC belt. Yeah, if you got even a little bit of a, a sense, then I tell you, we're going to have a Mr. Perfect error followed by a Bret Hart error followed by a Shawn Michaels error that you ought to know what that means. Yep, yep, you really got to know what that is all about. That's some great stuff right there. Uh, my only complaint with this match is uh, as we get towards the finish, uh, we get Mr. Perfect hitting the Perfect Plex. Piper just barely kicks out of it, which mm, if they're going to do the non-finish anyway. I don't know if they had to do that. Uh, it didn't... didn't offend me too greatly but uh maybe a little bit uh piper tries to roll up mr perfect gets out as well they fight back to the outside and we get kind of a contrived count out ending where mr perfect is even like up on the top rope and he's going to jump back in and the referee is still counting him and i don't know how many wrestling matches i've watched but it's uh quite a few and i ain't never seen that earl hebner when somebody's <laughs> on the top rope and you're still counting him out so uh <laughs> He, he gets pushed off, and he is counted out in short order. So um, you knew that they were not going to go to a real finish. I think they could have come up with a stronger non-finish, but still, I really enjoyed this match. Yeah, it was so bad that I came up with a storyline that you should have, like, a referee who's, like, the best referee, but he also has a drinking problem, and some <laughs> nights 
he shows up and everybody knows he's drunk and that might mean that you can take advantage of the match or it might mean that it might go the other way and the announcer's always saying yeah he's having a little trouble tonight but when he's on he's the best in the business <laughs> uh either that or maybe this is evil twin hebner um, oh, yeah. just messing with people so it, it's one or the other you know? i think piper wanted it like this because of course if you got, if you are a baby face of that much pride if you're not taking the bell it's got to be something like this yeah, yeah, you you may be right about that. Still a great match, I think, worth checking out. Uh, just unfortunate the finish could not be better, but uh, oh well, it is what it is. Yeah, then I think the next one's going to prove that great match is coming all shapes and sizes. <laughs> Absolutely, we get a match uh, of sorts that is uh, very different from your Mr. Perfect Workrate Classic. This match is the big boss man taking on Bobby Heenan, and I so love that we could get uh, one of these matches on the set. Um, these two had many matches that were similar to this around this time. It is uh, kind of the last run of Bobby Heenan's in-ring work. Uh, he will have, of all things after this, he will have an in-ring feud with Mr. Fuji, which basically does not exist on tape. Um, and I have no idea what those matches looked like. I would always have loved to see one of them, but uh, so far no luck. Um, but yes, we have one of these uh, very last Bobby Heenan matches, and God, like, <laughs> the match itself is barely there, and yet I absolutely love this stuff that we're about to talk about here. Yeah, it doesn't matter that we get, like, 20 seconds of match, <laughs> because Bobby Heenan, who I think has already apologized uh, in the past, mm -hmm. is going to get the microphone and say that... Um, Pretty much that he realized just right now that he's made a mistake and there's no need to have the match. And we go into this this elaborate story like he's been on the phone with the big boss and his mother. And it turns out she understood the whole time what, what Bobby Heenan was doing. And like she doesn't want boss man to, to behave like this. And if, if she could just get on the phone with the big boss man, she would have him call the whole thing off. Isn't that remarkable, Miss Fan? <laughs> Very fortunate for Bobby Heenan that this all happened. Um, he, he sent roses, five dozen red roses, to Big Boss Man's mother. Uh, he says Big Boss Man comes out and he's carrying a ball and chain this time, which is an interesting prop in and of itself. Um, the bell rings. Uh, the Bobby Heenan sells the mic. He drops to his knees. He's making more apologies. And, man, this is just some world-class begging right here. Because uh, he says again, oh, my comments were out of line. I don't even know your mother. You know I can't fight you. But look, I came to the ring. I came for the match. I wouldn't have even shown up if I was lying about this. You know, he's very much painting himself in a sympathetic light. He urges Big Boss Man, go to the back. There's a phone. It's off the hook. I was just talking to your mom. She's there. She's waiting for you. She's going to confirm everything I'm saying. I'll stay right here. Uh, I won't go anywhere. Didn't you ever make a mistake in your life? I'm so sorry. And God, it really just is amazing. Like, you've got to watch this because the, the run of, of verbal um, brilliance of Bobby Heenan here is just topped here. Yeah, this is 10-10 character work. Mm. It is the weasel part of Bobby Heenan taking over. It is... Sitting in the like on your knees in the corner. We all know the heel on their knees in the corner begging off during a match. But he's on his knees in the corner, like being small in body while being large in lies and claims on the microphone at the same time. Uh, like Ms. Van Say sent uh, five dozen uh, roses. Uh, Sean Williams says, "Talk about a desperate man." Um, 
And I also noted here, and I'll bring it up in another match, Sean Mooney and Alfred Hayes are as underrated as Jesse and Bobby Heenan are good. Oh, yes. They are delightful in some of these matches. So I'm excited. We'll talk more about that as we go along. Yeah, so Bobby Heenan, um, I think he almost convinced the big boss man. And even though the boss man is going to leave halfway down the island and come back, I think I can pick out where he said too much. Because as a heel, Bobby Heenan says, I made a mistake. And okay, I think that's okay. And then he says, I'm a human being. And I think that was the bridge too far. Now we know you're lying, Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the line that uh, even if the rest of it was true, Big Boss Man couldn't tolerate a claim like that. That's very baby face. (laughs) Yes. And it's so amazing because he's so specific about where the phone is and where you need to go. And Boss Man is just the type that you can see falling for it. And so he gets halfway down the aisle, and then all of a sudden he just decides for whatever reason. I think that might be where it came to him. Like, he's a human being. He's a heel. And he said, and you know, it's just one phrase too many. Poor Bobby Heenan, though. He has to put up with it. Uh, it's not a, not much of a match. I think it's a big boot or something, basically. Yeah, it's, it's very short. Uh, Heenan does uh, try to attack him with the microphone, at least, uh, and you can say it yes. was just self-defense or not, but uh, Heenan makes the attempt, doesn't make it far. Uh, he makes extremely short work of him. Yeah, it's a boot. It's kind of a bit of a slam, and uh, that's it, and then he drops the ball and chain on him after the match. Just, uh, you know, well, you know, Heenan was warned, so we can only be so sympathetic, I guess, in this case. Yeah. But uh, this is great because Heenan uh, was just, really physically shot at this point, you know, his neck was hurt. Um, you know, I think he had like nerve damage in his arm or something. He had a lot of stuff going on. Uh, but it was really important to him to give some kind of physical comeuppance for this whole thing, which I totally get because like you look at the stuff he said, the stuff he did, he knew that's what the feud needed. And, you know, you can tell he can't do as much as he used to nearly, but he still really does his best to bump around to uh, to take these shots and then to kind of work around the limitations. And that's why we get so much of a promo, I think. So I got to give huge credit to Bobby Heenan. Um, he was always very adamant, to my knowledge, that, yeah, a, a heel manager needs to be able to take bumps to get his comeuppance. And he does a great job here when really he probably could have sat back and be like, now nah, I'm not going to take any more bumps. You know, I don't feel good. Um, so big credit to Bobby Heenan for putting this out here. Yeah, I think that the gold standard for the heel at that time was exactly what you're saying. Like, in the heel themselves, whether that's a Cornette, whether that's a Bobby Heenan, they would not want to get the best of a boss man without this happening in the end. Right. You know, right. because they understand that's where the psychology is, that's where the money is, that's where the story is. And, you know, this is why I tried to point out, because we can obviously say, and it's right, just like with some of Hogan's later title reigns, just like with Savage, Warrior didn't get great storylines as champion. But I tried to emphasize this man got a feud with Bobby Heenan and Andre the Giant. Mm-hmm. So and it it was it was boring and it was uneventful. This matchup was not even a match. And look what Bossman got with Bobby Heenan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a it's a people credit it to Paul Heyman where like accentuate the positive, but man, like there were people who understood that I think long before yeah. in wrestling 
And uh, this is definitely another example of that. You just make the most of what you've got. And if you do it right, you can get something that's honestly pretty brilliant. And it can be in an unexpected way. And that is fine. That is actually very good stuff. I mean, I, I highly recommend people watching this, especially if you love character development and you just love just the brilliance of Bobby Heenan and that storyline. Like half the time, I thought Bossman's mother might be on that phone uh, backstage. <laughs> He really sells it, doesn't he? Yeah, no, it's great stuff. It's wonderful. It's a lot like Luger in 96 when he misses some of the great, great stuff. Luger's 95 to 97 is, believe it or not, top-ranked character stuff. Oh, yeah. But, like, Lex Luger's supposed to wrestle the Giant for the world title, and he keeps, like, missing his flights and things like that. (laughs) You know, and Sting is so mad at him because, like, you missed an opportunity and, of course, never believing what Luger says, even though Luger not believing him one time leads to uh, the whole Crow thing. That's another conversation. <laughs> but, like, Luger says, you know, you've never missed a flight. You think I did not want to wrestle for the world title? And at this time, you know Luger's a liar. You know what kind of character he has. And it's the same thing with Bobby Heenan. But when they start laying on those details, like Bobby Heenan says, I could have missed my flight. I could have made up a lie. The fact that I'm here means I'm trying to be sincere with you. And it's like... All those details make you for a moment overlook the character of the person and think, like, they might be telling the truth. It's a classic tactic, absolutely. I've uh, experienced it firsthand, you know, walking around a big city or something, you may meet somebody who has an elaborate story for you Mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, they need just a certain amount of money for a certain thing, and they've got a thousand details to back that up and how they never do this. And you know what? They're probably telling you the truth, but you know what? You might give them money anyway, just because yeah. uh, they might really sell you on these details. So, you know, there, there's a certain element of realism to it and uh, you got to appreciate that. Oh yeah. You know, some of the excuses you get for like when an assignment's not due on time. <laughs> do they hit but, you with those details? Mr. I wish I think I'd be, I'd be, it's the kind of thing that if you if someone hit me with these details, I wouldn't even care. I don't think it'd be like, you know what, you didn't do the the essay, but this email is is as brilliant as an essay. But you know, <laughs> as creative writing in and of itself. So. Yes, and it's it's because you know you think about both of them. Like, why is Bobby Heenan there if he doesn't have? You know, he could have made up an excuse. And the same thing with Luger. Like, why you want to miss a world title matchup? You know. And Sting admits, like, he makes Sting admit that he's missed flights to wrestling shows, but then he's like, I would never, not for the world title, though I would have made sure I was. Because, you know, Sting, Sting doesn't need details. He's got self-righteousness. <laughs> oh, absolutely so. So, great stuff there. I hope you're able to check that out. Uh, another real good one from this set here. Uh, we go on to what honestly might be the most interesting match to me in some ways of this whole set. Uh, it is January 21. We're back in Madison Square Garden. Uh, we have Coco Beware versus Tito Santana. And uh, you see those two names together and you probably think, oh, yeah, that'd probably be a really good match because they're both really good wrestlers. But this will take an unexpected turn. Uh, that will kind of exist outside of canon in the WWF. Like, it will not carry over into the main plot. And yet, the fact that it happened at all is very interesting to me. So, there's some unique stuff to pull out of this match that I'm looking forward to talking about. Yeah, this one is strange on paper, and it's even stranger in its play and how it plays out. <laughs> very much so. And we even have the strange team of Sean Mooney and Bobby Heenan on commentary. But like this match, it is strange, but good. And uh, some interesting stuff will come out of it. 
And Bobby, they have so many bits. Like Bobby asks, how do you like that bird? You like it extra crispy or regular? <laughs> <laughs> we are fast approaching a time. I think Bobby Heenan will call most, if not all, of WrestleMania 7. So we are really entering this uh, era where Heenan is about to step back from managing, which is tragic because he's probably the best manager ever. But he will step fully into the booth. And that's great because he is one of the best commentators ever because he's just so talented. It's ridiculous. So it's great stuff. Yeah. I didn't even write down half of them. He says, uh, I like a good fight with friends. I like a good divorce. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. He does throw that out there. So, oh, man. Bobby Heenan just uh, really feeling that schadenfreude sometimes. Happiness at the misfortune of others. So, some good stuff. This is great because also he predicts, Bobby Heenan does, early in this match, he says, oh, well, they're nice. They're shaking hands right now. One of these guys is going to get hot before the end of the match. He predicts one of them is going to act out in a different way. And Sean Mooney scoffs at this idea. And yet, and yet, in that Jesse Ventura uh, tradition, we will see that the heel was far more insightful than the baby face when it comes to commentary. Yeah, I've seen some studies that say, that optimists are happier in life than pessimists, but pessimists are accurate more times than optimists. And I think if you replace optimist with baby face and pessimist with heel, you would get the same statement. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. Baby faces are often very happy whether they should be or not. And uh, heels, I think, uh, see the universe just a bit more clearly than their uh, baby face counterparts. Yeah, and this is the only thing I will say. Madison, Madison Square Garden, they kind of suck as a crowd. Because this is like two matches. One, you're going to get the babyface exchanges with the like stand up and everybody cheers you, except some drunk guys yell, yelling boring and nobody's cheering. And then you're going to get a second half of a match that is very storied. And I think the Miz fans alluding to. So the only thing I didn't like is I think it deserved more crowd reaction. This is not the only time I've seen Tito and Coco matches where they should have got better reactions than they did. Yeah, I think uh, it's a couple of factors. One, it's just a sign of the times. Uh, it's weird now because there was a big push, like, we need more wrestling and wrestling. I think that's great because there are a lot of great matches out there. But uh, I think at a time like this, you get people who want to see, like, just the big stories, the big characters, and they don't even really care if the match is, like, quote-unquote good or not. That's kind of the whole Hulk Hogan thing, you know. That's, that's sort of the crowd that they attracted on purpose. Um and, you know, they made a lot of money doing it, so you can't really fault them for it. So I think it's that. And I think it's just also the fact that WWF has very much sent the message that, like, face versus face doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't yeah. even exist. So why why even, like, think about it? So they sort of set their own table on this one. I agree. The crowd could be better. But it's still a very interesting match to watch back. Yeah, I don't think it's a crowd that likes also, like you said, just two nice baby faces being nice to each other. So, you know, wish they, they will get their wish if that is the problem. So, yeah, Madison Square Garden, uh, they're known, I think, for acting out in uh, unexpected ways at times. Like this is the crowd that will uh, that will adore Sid and despise Shawn Michaels in mm-hmm. uh, a few years later here. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> it's worth something. <laughs> yeah. This uh, is so. Yeah, go ahead. Number one, I knew Bobby Heenan was right in Sean Mooney. Like, even if I had never watched wrestling, like, I just knew that Sean Mooney, this is a very Vince McMahon thing. And he's a, he is, I think he was the, the heir apparent if, if he had stayed, but like, he has no idea that these two might lose their temper with each other. Like, how can you, not only 
could anybody do that as Bobby Heenan talks about their competitors, but also they both have short tempers as a lot of baby faces do. Like I would have put any money that I had on what happened happening, though I wouldn't have been able to predict who it would have been done by. <laughs> that's, that's a very good point. Um, I think if anything, Sean Mooney was not self-righteous enough uh, about his predictions. Maybe mm. that's why he would not ascend to that level. But, um, Yes, this match does indeed break down a bit because uh, Coco Beware, that beloved babyface, um, starts to get hot. He, he, he starts shoving Tito. He said he pulled his hair. He's acting appropriately. Tito still wants the handshake, but Coco, he goes in for the attack. He's not acting babyface-ish at all, and Bobby Heenan is actually praising him. So we get a very rare match where Coco Beware works heel, does a great job, and I guess of these two... Like, I wouldn't expect either one to turn heel, but, man, if I had to pick one, I think I would have picked Coco because Tito, like, I don't think he has a bad bone in his whole body. Like, he's just quintessential babyface to me. And Coco, yeah, I could see him getting tired of that bird. I can see him bringing out maybe a, a cooked bird someday and just being like, hey, this is who I am now. So, so yeah, I, I maybe could have guessed which one it would be. But, man, it's very interesting, and I got to say, he does a great job with it. Yeah, there's an exchange in the middle of the ring, and Bobby Heenan says that Tito might have said something unpleasant about the bird. <laughs> That's uh, the justification that. that he offers. And I think Sean Mooney kind of accepted it even, yeah. which is why he can't be Vince McMahon, you know, because Vince would have would have scorned that. But but Mooney kind of goes along with it. So This is why when you – it's a weird thing because Virgil, for example, the minute that he kind of stood up to Ted DiBiase – it did not make him uh, a part of the baby faces, but it meant that he was no, he could no longer be with the heels. Mm, yeah. So there's like a scary moment when you first turn in it. We see this with Coco hasn't even turned, but he's behaving like a heel. And Sean Mooney's like, well, maybe you can recruit him into your family. <laughs> <laughs> so he's out, that's how quick it happens. You got to make sure that, you know, you might be thinking you're leaving one side, but you better make sure that you got space on the other side as well. <laughs> it's funny how long people will make uh, excuses for you, because I guess contrary to my point, you got to think back on the mega powers, and until Savage actually turned, there was every excuse in the book for him. It's like, oh, no, the mega powers are great. They're both great people, and they're always nice to each other, and, you know, neither one of them ever misbehaves. And then, then you know, one day, night and day, it turned over, and it was the opposite. So, good point. Oh, man. So I really enjoyed this one. Uh, Tito... Tito's just, I think, blindsided by it, and Coco dominates for a while, but then when Tito comes back, he comes back kind of with the same, like, energy. Oh, yeah, the fire of Tito Santana. This is, again and again, this will get me, because Tito Santana is as good as, uh, he is up there with uh, Sean and Brett and Perfect even still. I think he is on that level of in-ring talent. And uh, he will just get very little recognition of it. But every time we have a chance to watch what he can do, yeah, he is great here. He is fired up. He is awesome. There's another great Bobby Heenan line. He says, well, we didn't want to see two guys rolling around in an arm lock anyway. We want to see teeth flying. So Bobby Heenan <laughs> foreshadowing the Attitude Era and maybe speaking to the uh, mentality of this crowd as well. Like, th this match is fired up. You'd think you could see a teeth fly by the by the end of this match. It's very good stuff. Yeah, Heenan has his pulse on the wrestlers and the and the fans better than the babyface commentator at this moment. Mm, absolutely, and Tito 
Tito has his his fan on the pulse as well because these two they're so fired up they are punching it out. Tito starts slamming Coco and he's damn near dropping him on his head. Coco has to beg off. He is regretting the actions that he took. The energy of this match is so weird, but it's so good. I really enjoy it. Yeah, it blows my mind how someone's a baby face their whole career and then they behave poorly and within three minutes they have found themselves in the corner begging off like Bobby Heenan and other heels. <laughs> oh, yep, it's true. Yeah, the, the biggest argument against turning heel is you will become so much weaker uh, all of a sudden. <laughs> so <laughs> you will lose that strength, I guess, from the fans that Hulk Hogan always sucked up all of. So there you go. Yes. One of my favorite things in the entirety of the business is Tito's finisher and the signature, like, the way he pops off the rope, the way his body is in it, the way he hits it. Like, the, there are not many moves that are better than Tito in his signature flying forearm. Oh, it's gorgeous. The way he the way he hits it here is beautiful. He does get the victory with that move. But, you know, it felt like it could have gone either way. This is a very tight match between two guys, and I'm a little sad they didn't follow this up any because, uh, you know... I wouldn't miss high energy. Coco and Owen will be together uh, in time. So that that's some good stuff. But still, any chance to do more with Coco, beware. I think they should have taken it because he is just a fun guy to watch. And uh, time and time again, he proves his value to a company that did not fully appreciate him. Yeah. And it's just, I can see, like, I think if he had turned heel, it might have led to about five or six other baby faces eventually joining him. And Tito might have been one of them just because <laughs> like the message that it would have sent, I don't think that people of that station, as far as lower card, always just happy to be there, always doing the right thing. Mm. I don't think they could just get bitter in a match and turn on each other. And Coco to the point that Coco did it and it did not translate to reality. <laughs> Like how many other house shows were these baby faces turning heel, but it never could crack through to the to the to the TV and the storyline. <laughs> That's a very good question. I always wonder. Um, yeah, I think they often like experimented with stuff on these uh, these house shows just to see what might work and what you know maybe they didn't want to go with. So I was wondering, like, if you're a kid at this time and you're invested in, like, you know, the, the K-Fob and everything, and you see this match, and then the next time you see Coco come out, do you think of Coco differently? Like, I don't know. Like, I can't put myself in that mindset, but I feel like there must have been some confused reactions at times from the children. Yeah. I can't imagine Tito, like, right now watching. Like, Rick Martel is in maybe the greatest few, like, going into WrestleMania. Yeah. So, like, I can see it. There's a lot of these guys. Hacksaw's too stupid and self-important, but, like, <laughs> some of the others. Sure. These two. Oh, where is Owen Hart, for for the record, you know? Right, yeah. Right. I can see a lot of them just being like, no, nah, I'm, I'm done with this. And I think it would happen the way that it happened, where not even against a heel or against, like, just in the middle of a match, babyface versus babyface, that's where you lose it and you just can't take any more of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean... Yeah. If Tito did get frustrated, I couldn't blame him. Like, where has he been on the last pay-per-views? I think he put over, uh, who, Warlord at last WrestleMania and maybe Barbarian at SummerSlam and then, uh, you know, went down to Slaughter at Survivor Series. And now yeah. at this next WrestleMania, he's going down to the Mounties. So it's just like a never-ending uh, run of, of losses to guys that the company values more. And, man, if a guy like Tito did ever get mad, like – 
you could understand it for God's sake. Cause yeah. you look at that and it's like, man, I would get mad. I think after a while. So there you go. Tito is always the guy that put people over. Yep. Yep. And I think I'm understanding why Ricky Steamboat had the temper that he had, because that, <laughs> that might be the only thing that separates him from Tito Santana. I think so. I was just thinking about that, how Tito never was like quite the angry dad that Steamboat was. Yeah. And I think maybe it actually worked against him in this case. Steamboat, you know, is in one of the greatest WrestleMania matches, you know, the IC title. He's a WCW, he's an NWA world champion, he's a U.S. champion, he's a tag team champion. And I do think the only distinction is you're not going to treat him the way that you – that's life, too, and it sucks. And you you learn that as an adult. But people – it's almost like the structure is going to – people are going to be treated a certain way. And if you're nice enough to not to say anything, like if I got to choose between – the person that if I do this, they're just going to go along with it. Or the person who's going to be in my office and let me know, like, I'm not tolerating this stuff. Mm. It's going to be Tito every time. And that, that sucks. It does suck. And uh, just to prove your point, in 1991, we'll have both the Matador, which is we'll talk about that when we get to it. But we will also have the Dragon at the same time. And one of these guys will stick around the company until they finally fire him. And one of these guys will leave almost as soon as he gets there. And he will go back and have a legendary run in WCW. Yep. So that will tell you maybe the mentality that is better to have if you're a babyface. It's sad, too, because I've heard Tito say, I think when he went away to be El Matador, he thought they were going to bring him in for a main event push. Uh, if only. I would have loved to see it because he really is so good. He... It's sad that he and Greg Valentine are kind of in the same bucket now where they are both just these incredible wrestlers who get very little opportunity to show off kind of their great wrestling abilities. So I would have loved for both of them to run off to WCW. I don't know if there was room for him, but sure, Sting had his stupid, like, what were they called, the best friends or, you know, dudes with attitude or whatever. Yeah. Like, they could have been in that. They would have been better than some of the guys who were in that. So for God's sakes, like... They could have done the same thing, same babyface gimmick, on a higher level over in WCW at the same time, I think. And they would have had better matches, too. So it's unfortunate. It's a missed opportunity, I think. Oh, I've said this a hundred times. You just put him in 1991, Tito, in the TV title division with oh. Steve, Steve Austin, Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, and mm. just you know let, let it ride. Yeah, amazingly good stuff. Could have been. It's a damn shame. But we'll still get some good Tito stuff, some good Valentine stuff. I think Valentine will feud with Mr. Perfect before SummerSlam. Oh. There'll be some awesome stuff with that. Uh, Tito Santana will uh, be fighting Ric Flair when he first comes in, yes. and they will have some really good matches together. So there's still good stuff. It's just could have been more. Could have been more, you know? Yeah, Tito's a legend maker, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Tito's amazing. He's got that little bit of that Mick Foley energy, you know, maybe not the promos, but just uh, being there to put over guys and doing it in such a way that really, really helps them. You know, he, he's very good at that. A hugely giving wrestler. And I gotta, I gotta love Tito. No doubt. Yeah. I think it's pretty much the same era. He's putting Flair over and then he's putting Michaels over. So yeah, absolutely. You know, every path goes through Tito Santana. <laughs> you got it. Oh, El Matador. We'll talk about that. I, I'm not a fan of that, as you might guess from my tone. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to talk about our second to last match. And here's where I'm going to switch the order around a little so that our main event is a little more uh, uh, fun to talk about. 
Uh, we have Haku versus Davey Boy Smith here on a February 19th episode of Primetime Wrestling. And uh, this is one I hadn't seen before. I put it on out of sheer curiosity. And uh, the match itself, I think, is solid. It's nothing mind-blowing. But definitely the big takeaway for me is how delightful Alfred Hayes and Sean Mooney are because they are on commentary for this match. And they will have, like, a delightful conversation about Sean Mooney's rugby career, and they yes. will just be talking like they are great friends. I put in my notes, I would like to have Sean Mooney and Alfred Hayes come over to my house so we can watch wrestling together. I think that would be the most fun thing I could think of. So <laughs> I love that. Almost all my notes are Lord Alfred Hayes and Sean Mooney. It's, <laughs> they're beautiful together. Like I said, they are their own version of all those other teams we praised. Um at one point, Sean Mooney's praising him, and Alfred Hayes says, are you referring to my age? And he's like, your experience. I would never do that to my elders. <laughs> <laughs> they are great, and they have a totally different vibe than any of these other teams. Yes. Yeah. I would have put, you know, obviously they wanted a big star, so they brought in Piper to do it, and they'll bring in other wrestlers. But, God, I would have taken one of these guys or both and put them on TV because they are really just delightful together. <laughs> Yeah, they are a dream team to me. And I also said that Sean Mooney is to announcing what Dustin Rose is to wrestling. Like he's the natural. <laughs> he like, is the natural. I love that. Yeah. It's just good. And it feels like he's just being himself. He's paced well. He's not overdoing it. And that's I think that's why it works so well with Alfred Hayes, because neither of them are like a caricature and they're not over the top. Like Lord Alfred Hayes is a heel that will praise the baby faces and he'll explain his answers and Sean Mooney is a baby face that will sometimes admit he's wrong or accept what the hill has to say. Man, I would have loved for Sean Mooney to get like a, a Michael Cole-esque run where he's just in yes. the company for like 30 years and a sense to be like the main voice of it. If he were doing it still today, that would be like one more check mark for me to come and watch WWE mm. again, which I probably wouldn't do anyway. But man, I would at least uh, it would be at least one more point in their favor. It's that big of a deal. Like. I will miss him when he's gone as much as I'll miss anybody. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't know when he comes, but it's all too soon. I think I don't remember him after 92. So that's a I remember shame. one time I called, I told someone that they were pleasant <laughs> and, and they got mad at me because they saw it as an insult. Like nobody wants to be called pleasant. And I didn't mean it as an insult, but it was just a, like a pleasant experience. And I meant pleasant as I don't have to stress. Like, I can be relaxed, and it's, it's always good. And that's how I feel about Sean Mooney and Alfred Hayes. It is a pleasant experience. It is great. And I would say I would love to be called pleasant, so uh, calm down, whoever doesn't want to be yeah. pleasant. I it don't know what you mind. think like, you are, but... Uh... It's it like, <laughs> well, you're not... Don't worry. Like, I don't... I will never say that again. <laughs> I have been corrected. No. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's great. It's funny, because... Like, I, you know, they probably have more freedom to kind of just like do their own thing down here, like on, on these matches, which people were not that concerned about maybe, but mm -hmm. it weirdly reminds me of some of my favorite, like independent wrestling commentary yeah. where it's just like two friends and you know, they do a good job still, but like, they're just so comfortable with each other. They're having a good time. They're like, including you, the viewer in like the good time they're having. It's just a very good feeling. Like, I really enjoy that when you get that vibe out of wrestling. Yeah. And I, I get the vibe, whether it's right or wrong, the Sean Mooney's a good dude. Like, you know, he yeah. he kind of had that revival with NWA. He's on social media. Like, 
I, I have some back when I was on Twitter, sometimes I would say things to him and he seemed to actually appreciate some of the things. So it's, I just, I don't know. Cause I haven't even thought about this till we had this conversation that I have no idea when either one of these leave or when they're, they, them, when they as a team leave. So now I'm starting to get worried. <laughs> um, yeah, Lord Alfred Hayes is around for a long time, like much yeah. longer than you would think, but he, he will have a pretty minor role after a while. Um, God, he might be there until 95 or 96 even, wow. which seems crazy to me. But, uh, yeah, Sean Mooney will not be there nearly as long. Like I said, I don't really remember him after 92. I think he'll get replaced by uh, Todd um, Pettingale, or hopefully I'm saying the name right. <laughs> but um, Who replaces uh, Alfred Hayes? Uh, is it uh... – uh, Doc Hendricks is Hendricks. <laughs> Probably. I mean, is Alfred A is even a role you need replacing? Yeah. Like, I was never clear what his job was, but yeah, probably, probably Doc Hendricks. Um, whatever that is. I yeah. was just reading because he still Alfred Hayes did the like paid promotional consideration paid by or you know whatever yeah. the line is. Like you can probably hear it when he was gone. They replaced him with Stan Lane for a while of all uh, people. I remember Stan. Yeah, because he'll be around in that role for, like, a little bit. So just weird connections. <laughs> All you got to do is look a certain way, and you will have job security in WWF. <laughs> That's why I think Sean Mooney could have done well, because, he, you know, he looks like, I think, Vince would like his look, you know. But I think he had too much uh, actual talent, which is Vince is not a fan of. So <laughs> <laughs> It could be. I mean, he just got a better deal. Uh, I think he did a lot of stuff with, like, actual yes. newscasts and stuff. I think we looked that up before, but, yeah. I don't know. Sean Mooney's a very interesting one. They're a little like nooks and crannies to his Dota of career that I don't even know well. Like, I know a few times he hosted, like, the Spotlight show, which I think was just, like, a review show. But he would host it with Sherry, of all people. Wow. And they had, like, an alternate character. Like, sometimes he was Ian Mooney, Ian Mooney who was, like, supposed to be his <laughs> twin. And maybe he was, like, a little bit more evil. And there's just, like, weird, like, little little pieces of this guy's career that, that – don't even exist hardly, but they're out there. So I don't even know where that would fit in. Maybe I'll try to dig that stuff up at some point. I would like to see at least a clip because I've never heard of that in my life. <laughs> I think that's why. Fine. <laughs> he's surprised. He looks like someone who would take himself too seriously, and I get no indication that he did. Yeah, yeah. He reminds me of, uh, well, that's too obscure. I won't even say it. Uh, but yeah, just like a guy who not only seems like so professional but also is, like, sort of in on it as well. I don't know. I think we said he's, like, maybe the closest thing to Gene Okerlund. Um, and yeah. he could have sat in a role like that, but that role kind of got discontinued, sadly. So, yeah. Like, I don't dislike Todd Pettingill, but, like, he will be more of a joke all the time, whereas Sean Mooney can be the joke if it's necessary, but can also be something else. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, this is something that I really might be able to dig out because uh, when, when primetime changes format, which they've done like right about at this time, they go from Heenan and Monsoon behind the desk to like kind of a studio show where there are like fans in attendance. And at first will be Heenan and McMahon. But after a little while, it will change over. It will be Bobby Heenan and Sean Mooney, and they will host the studio show together and they will do some hmm. very wacky things. So maybe I will dig that up as well. Do we have to do, like, a Sean Mooney episode? Like, <laughs> I'm honestly be, getting to that point. Yeah, I would not be against it. I cannot – like, I don't know how to even explain what it means to me when I hear Sean Mooney and Lord Alfred Hayes. Like, <laughs> it's like if you have 
been stressed out to the level that you can't control your thoughts, your days are out of control, and you meditate one time and you realize I actually can control my breathing. And then by your breathing, I can control my thoughts. I can control my day. Like they open up space and they're fun and they make me happy and they, they make me feel like all of the things that bring nostalgia, like wrestling wise, and yet I have no nostalgia with them. They're just that good that I'm having a childlike experience way into adulthood in real time, but it's also in the past. So in the moment, I'm having a new experience, but it's also a nostalgic experience because it comes from back then. And it's just, I'm happy when I live. They make me happy. And I can't say that about a lot of things. Mm, yeah. No, it, they really are just so fun together. And that that feeling of happiness is hard to quantify and yet I think it's so valuable and it's so much of what drives the stuff that we really love um, as far as like entertainment and even relationships, because like you be, you can know interesting people and you can do interesting things with them. But if they actually make you happy, mm. that's like a special feeling that you can't really duplicate with anything else. That's a great, that's a really good point. Cause I know for me, I have moved a lot and, the significant relationships like I I have like here's one person in this state and one person in this state and here's one in this state and the ones that last are the ones that when you talk to them it could have been like a year and a half since you last talked to them and you're not the same person and they're not the same person and yet you pick up like old friends and you connect like you used to and not only do I feel like I get that when Sean Mooney and Lord Alfred Hayes together but then we get that as the audience in a way at the yeah. same time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it really feels like you're very much included in like their, mm. their, their positive feelings. So it's great. I love them both. I'm glad we got to uh, cover them here. Um, the match itself, I think, is a, a perfectly solid match. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing amazing about it either besides the commentary. Um, Davey Boy Smith is back in the company in a big way. Uh, he will get some big attention. I personally find him a little overrated in some ways, but uh, he's got his strengths as well, uh, especially his actual strength, which is impressive, uh, and body control also, because Haku will hit a pile driver on him yeah. in this match that not only looks amazing from Haku's side, but Davy Boy Smith will seem literally stuck in the mat <laughs> for like several seconds yes. and just like i don't know how a human being could hold their body that way but that that was very impressive yeah haku is amazing davy boy i think we we feel the same about davy but he i think the important notes he has full-on become the davy as far as look hairstyle and build yeah. that will be like the singles division sean mooney says he was already awesome before he put on 35 pounds of muscle <laughs> So. Jesus Christ, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know how he lugged himself around sometimes, but now he will have some very impressive stuff, I think, all the way into uh, at least 97 or something. So he'll he'll have his moments and plenty of them. Um, he's never an all-timer to me. He's got his weaknesses too, but, but he has some very good strengths that I'll give him credit for. Is he going into the Hall of Fame this year, or is he already in? Oh, my God, I have no idea. They probably put him in, he seems like the type of guy they would put in just, just because uh, I read something know. about him recently. Cause I was, I, WWF might have interest in Davey boy Smith jr. And I then I saw something about hall of fame. 
So uh, I don't know. Yeah. Dave Boy Smith Jr. is an interesting wrestler. He's not bad. Um, let me see. WWE Hall of Fame Class of 2020. So, yeah, I guess he went in earlier this year or last okay. year now. So, yeah. There's, uh, I'm guessing, well, it was February. I wonder if they started announcing. Nothing interesting me watching WWE anymore, but I'm always somehow I just want to know who's going into the Hall of Fame each year, even though I don't really care about it and I don't watch it. I guess I'm still waiting for Lex Luger. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking through, I think some... No, this doesn't seem right. I'm going to leave this alone. I'm not going to try to parse out the Hall of Fame right now, so... <laughs> Um, all right, so yeah, uh, Bulldog does win this match, as you might expect, uh, with a crucifix pin. And I gotta say, like, the crucifix pin was fine, but again, I see a praise to commentary, because Lord Alfred Hayes in particular, like, sells this move as being so cool, and like, you almost look at it in a new light, and he's like, oh, I want production to give us another shot of this amazing pin, and I'm like, wow, okay, cool, like, you actually got me more hype for this pin than I was originally, so that that's a very good job, commentary. Yeah, I think it's the next matchup where it's like Sean Mooney asks, like, why is it the European hair, uh, uppercut? And Lord Alfred Hayes has a history of like four or five moves and where they came from and how they got adapted. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> I suddenly have a weird urge to have Mike Tanay of WCW era and this Lord Alfred Hayes like talking mm. about stuff. I think I think they would not even speak the same language and yet would get along really well. So <laughs> I can definitely see that. Be like Mike today. Ah, da 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 da. Facts. Lord of it is. Oh, that's interesting. Make up some crap. Oh yeah, <laughs> like that's interesting. You know, like they would just have a good time together. So. Yes. <laughs> oh man. All right. So we do have our main event, Mr. Perfect versus Shawn Michaels, which you can see on the WWE Network. I put the link. It's on a Coliseum video release of all things. Just saying that kind of excites me, even though I wasn't even around in that era. Something about it. Uh, it's on their world tour video for 1991 and uh i'd seen this one before i knew to seek it out but man like i was very excited to watch it again and i think it really lived up to my memory of it i love this matchup and i love even michaels at the end janetti have like jean jackets and i don't know the, the change <laughs> like i think this is getting so close to like you know the breakup so uh this is uh michaels reminds me I never saw in Sting what, like, Jim Ross and Ric Flair all claimed that they saw, whereas it's like when he was wrestling for the TV title, they were like, oh, obviously, that's our world champion in our <laughs> franchise because he can jump so high. <laughs> I can see a little bit of that in this Shawn Michaels. I mean, his jumps are very impressive for sure. We already talked about that incredible damn dive that he will do, and I think we'll talk about it more when we get to that part of the match. But, yeah, no, just like – the physicality of the Shawn Michaels, we are far past the point where you're like, oh, these two guys are the same, and we're definitely into the point where you're like, okay, Shawn Michaels is really going to be something bigger. We don't know what exactly, how far he'll go, but, like, something is going on here. Yeah, even his face has got more of an angry and arrogant look and just, like, distinction versus, like, I'm one half of a, um, what do they call it again, the... That's uh, what kind of tag team. I'm a specialist. I'm a tag team specialist with my partner here. <laughs> I hope um, now everybody uh, knows their names and can tell them apart. I think yes, we're definitely into important. that time. <laughs> you got to get that before you can get anything else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it took like four years, I think, for it to happen. I would fire anybody in 91 that doesn't know the difference. 
I oh my god, right? <laughs> uh, this is not like not being able to tell the nasty boys apart. This is actually important. So come on. Yeah, it's also a Michaels who has not fully. Uh, he'll get suspended for steroids. That's how we're gonna get two IC titles. Weirdly enough, and it's like when he's chubby. Yet. So it's a weird time. But like yeah, like Mr. Perfect looks like he's got about 15 pounds of muscle over Michaels. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely got got more bulk. Um, Kurt Henning always with like the very broad chest and yeah. just yeah, the look of him. He's never like a really muscle bound guy, but he always looks. Um, I don't know, like when he when his chest broadened out, that's kind of when he became the Mister Perfect that I know about. Because like he'll he'll look a lot thinner in his earlier matches. He's still very good, but like yeah, he's really into his look now. And uh, you know, it's the Mister Perfect that I I always think of. Yeah, and he bullies Michaels early too, and so it's a thing. And he he's making fun of the tassels at first, which are on Michaels' uh, wrists, <laughs> and that was funny to me because uh, apparently he ribbed like when he was working Luger before WrestleMania nine. Every house show that match, he would take one tassel off of Luger's narcissist trunks, and apparently it drove Luger crazy. But every single night he would remove one more tassel from his outfit. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. Mr. Perfect. Uh, I don't know. I might have also gotten irritated if I were actually the subject of these pranks. But, man, it does. It sounds very harmless and charming. And I don't know. Yeah. I just really like um, what I know of Mr. Perfect. So yeah. it's good stuff. It's just funny because I heard that story. And then, like, the minute he sees those tassels, he's just, like, mocking Michaels for them. So <laughs> something about tassels and Mr. Perfect. Well, yeah, tassels. uh are tassels even in style anymore in this time? I have no idea, yeah. but um, you could certainly make fun of them at any point. Uh, yes. Uh, I think that's the I'm, thing I never get about him. Like, he's he's a rugged like Minnesota guy, like rude. Like, yeah. Gimmick-wise, I always put him in with more of the guys like Michaels and stuff, but he's not actually that. Like, he's a very different kind of character. Yeah, he's got similarities, but also some really distinct differences. Uh, he stands out because... This is the dichotomy we've talked about. Like Michaels, he has, like, these big bumps, and Michaels will really adopt those as he goes forward, and, you know, there's that aspect of him. Yet, he can be so rugged, he can be so vicious on the other side as well, so there's definitely multiple facets to Mr. Perfect. Yeah, they have a great moment earlier where they're chain wrestling, and you got the go-behind, and then Perfect just hits Michaels with a hard, hard elbow uh, to break out of that kind of lock, and then... They were, they'll reverse it after that, and Michaels tries to hit him with an equally hard elbow, and Perfect ducks it, and then Michaels hits him with an equally hard uh, European uppercut. Mm, yes, super good sequences in this match. Um, really excellent stuff. I was wondering about this, and I don't know if you have an answer. I guess it's probably an opinion, but what do you think is the best period of Shawn Michaels? Like, not, not just like... <sighs> pre-comeback, post-comeback. I was thinking, because with so many of these guys, I think there is, like, a consensus pick. I don't know if there is one for Michael, so I, I don't know if we can even pick one, but it occurred to me, and I really wanted to uh, at least try to get your take, because I know you're a big Michaels fan. Yeah, Michaels, like, when I started watching wrestling in 91, and Lex Luger, I watched WCW, not WWF, and Luger is my favorite wrestler. The moment I started watching WWF, Michaels became my favorite WWF wrestler from day one, and my second favorite wrestler, um, I, to me, number one, and this is, again, like you said, it depends on what you value, but 
Michaels in the first half of his career can never touch Michaels in the second half of his career because of the well-roundedness. Like he was not the storyteller as far as the emotional aspects, the full, uh, but his athleticism, like second half probably can never touch first half athleticism. Um, so just for me personally, I, I prefer the second half of his career. But if I broke down the first half, I love him as an IC champion. So his first heel run is very special in that everything is uncharted. Like if you just got sense, you know that this guy's potential is unlimited in a way that almost nobody else's is. Mm. And you're watching him in the early part where everything's still on the table. I loved him through, he got so popular that they finally had to turn him face. And so even when Sid attacks him, like I loved him through all of that. I think the worst thing, the only time I really didn't like him was when they tried to make him world champion. That early part was so, like he was with Jose Lothario. He was like a kind of Ricky Steamboat character without a temper. You know, he was just like, oh, I'm a really nice guy who can wrestle well. And that's obviously not Michael's in either <laughs> regard. Uh, but then he ended up having like mind games matches with so and the Undertaker matches with the cell. Yeah. Oh God, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I guess yeah, this is what happens with Shawn Michaels trying to break down like which specific parts of his career are best. It's really hard to do because he is very consistently good and not always in exactly the same way. Yes. And um yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I wanna parse it out continuously as we go through his career, because we're going to cover a lot of it in this series, but yeah, no, I'm, that was a good answer, even though it was not really an answer. So I appreciate you walking through that. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're smart to say at the beginning, it depends on what you want, like which part of Michael's do you want? Because it's different at all times. And sure. I mean, I I know people who love the first part and kind of like disdain the, the post comeback stuff. I know people like you who uh, say post comeback was actually better. I don't even know where I sit. Uh, you've got like Rocker Sean, IC Sean, Champion Sean, like Hell in a Cell Sean, uh, so many different kinds and like probably stuff that people don't even think about because he's just got a lot of stuff going on. So it's hard to parse it all out, um, but I really want to get into it as we go forward. I think part of me will also say that at the height of his uh, run as far as world t- being world champion, the DX stuff, like it, he was drugged out of his mind. And sure. like part of the attitude era is that like it was shock value a lot of times. So like you can't tell me as a well-rounded character like he could ever be at his best when he had to be drugged out and doing things because that nobody's ever seen. Oh, like, you know, look, he took his clothes off. Oh, my gosh. You know. <laughs> Versus some of the story stuff that he did, like he came back to the WWF that to me was just like a lot of the characters over, especially over time, would just they'd be so controlled and so scripted. And it's like, oh, man, here's someone having an actual like feeling like I thought that he was going to beat The Undertaker at one time because of things that I should never think like, Oh, he's wearing white and he's religious. And like, he's got the power of God on his side, you know? <laughs> so you can't lose to the undertaker. Undertaker's wearing black and he's wearing white. He might have a chance against it. And like somewhere amid, amidst all of that, I had to know undertaker is just going to beat him. You know, I had to know that. Mm. And yet convinced me that while I was watching the matches and he's so obnoxious, the way he would stand up to undertaker and get in his face and just, you know, 
uh, all of that stuff. And then if you want to know how good he was, then watch Triple H try to have the same kind of like story with the Undertaker <laughs> for a couple of years after. So. Oh man. I will do this gladly throughout all of the Legacy series that we're covering because it just hit me by you telling me this. I watched this series to try to reconnect with Randy Savage, and now I'm going to get a chance to reconnect with my my favorite WWF wrestler in a way that I never expected. So that might be the great transition for me. It's like, let's, yeah, break down every era because even I see IC 92-93 is not IC 94. Like, it's that distinct. Right, yeah. And I don't even know. I don't even know what some of these years are going to show me because I after '93, my my knowledge gets hazy because I kind of jumped over to WCW, you know, in my rewatch. So there's a lot of stuff that I don't even know is going to happen. So uh, thank you for all that. Also, thank you. <laughs> there's such. Uh, I'm just glad that you speak so highly of that first that WrestleMania uh, 25 match in yeah. 2009 of Michaels and Undertaker because that match is so special. I think Benjamin Button is talking about, like, you remember where you were when you watched that match. And, yeah, that is so true. And there is, like, this counter-narrative. There's, like, oh, that match wasn't really good, and these other ones were better. Like, the next one was better and all this stuff. And, man, it's, like, to each their own, I guess. But, like, no. Like, people don't – that's not the way most people feel about it. And, uh, you know, that's not always the be-all, end-all. But, like, just – I can't stand when people are dismissive of like a match like that, which was so important to a lot of people in, in a way that is very visceral and not like intellectual, even like it's a match yes. that just had you feeling and there's really something special about that. Ah, man, I will just say a number one to each your own. And, and I understand mm. that when something is lifted up so high, the only reaction is to say something contrary to it. Sure. Hype backlash is very real. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, like, <laughs> Just the feel of it versus like, yeah, like they didn't have to. Paul Bear didn't have to die for them to try to like get heat. <laughs> I'll put it that way, you know. And I'm a little bit foolish, and I apologize to Undertaker fans because I know this is not altogether true. But man, I didn't know even when the streak became the streak, it wasn't the streak like I know it. It was, it was Michaels a lot of it that. Like his desire to take it from the Undertaker made me realize like what a what a crown jewel it must be. Yeah. You know, so I don't know how you I don't know how you get away with. Like, give me a break. And you said it like intellectually, like you can have whatever conversation, but like my God, I don't understand how you don't have the felt sense reaction that yes, most people had to that. And it's it's partly too. This is this is gonna be a beautiful thing to get because Undertaker does not like Shawn Michaels because Shawn Michaels is a monster, like a t- little terrorist backstage, and we'll get into that, you know. And Undertaker is the respectable Andre the Giant leader. Yeah. So when we watch Hell in the Cell, for example, like Undertaker loves and respects Bret Hart, he does not like Shawn Michaels because Shawn Michaels is a horrible human being, is against everything he stands for, and despite that they get the kind of matches that they get out of each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard earned respect that it's almost like I hate everything about your character, but my God, do I want to be in the ring with you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That must've been the big conundrum of Shawn Michaels in that time. Um, Cause he's going to have many of his best matches. And also, as you said, he'll be just about the worst that a person can be at times, uh, especially in his real life. Um, So, 
that's all in the future. We are still in 1991. I'm so interested. So when you started watching the WWF, was he still in the Rockers? I think he was barely. Wow. We saw we saw when he turned on Marty in real time. Wow. So even you you said as soon as you started watching, yes. he became like your favorite. So even when he's still in the Rockers, that's awesome, yes. man. That's that's great. I love hearing that. And, I want people to understand that because I'm not good at a lot of things, but I do have a felt sense. Like Shawn Michaels in the Rockers was my first favorite wrestler in WWF. Like in 1991, I've said this a million times. I watched Steve Austin and been like that guy. And in 91, was like that guy's gonna be a world champion. And I thought wrestling was real at the same time while I was had. But this was not my brain. This was like my felt sense, gut instincts. And like Eric Bischoff wouldn't know that three years later. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that that feeling in your heart, you know, kind of like yeah. Oh, that's great stuff. But then, uh, you know, you also thought Lex Luger would rule the world, so, like, it can go either way. So. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> and he did not. Because, like, Sadly. think about the as a Lex Luger fan, though. I happened to start watching wrestling at the moment where he was challenging for the world title and won it. So that's all I knew of Lex Luger. It's like he challenged <laughs> for the belt and he won it. <laughs> it's so funny what first impressions can be. I always love hearing about them because there's nothing there's – nothing, quite like those first impressions before like your brain takes over. And then, you know, I love having these, I'm not down on these intellectual conversations, but they're just, you know, you can have them kind of forever, but you can only have that feeling like at certain Mm -hmm. times. So it is. And I want to ask you a question real quick. I want to say this so I don't forget, but like, you're like, why are they having this weird Shawn Michaels whole career conversation? (laughs) Like the Shawn Michaels that wrestles Mr. Perfect, all of those potentials, are inside of this human being where you can never say like, oh man, he's absolutely going to be these things. But if you watch this match, all of those potentials exist even back then. Yeah. And now my question, you started watching WWF in 2003. Who were your first favorite wrestlers? Oh man. So I, uh, I'd seen like a bare minimum of wrestling before, nothing much really uh, until that point. I started watching SmackDown because it was on UPN. We got UPN as one of the few channels we got. And um, man, my first favorite wrestlers when I started watching got to be like Undertaker was on there. Chris Benoit stood out. Um, Tajiri, I, I liked very quickly. Uh, Rey Mysterio was on there at that time. Uh, Brock Lesnar was champion, and I always felt a connection to him, even though I kind of disdain some of his current work. Like, I look back at that era of Brock Lesnar, and it's so high to me. Uh, Big Show is in there. Just a lot of people. Like, I don't know if I could narrow it down to one. Probably Undertaker would have been my number one real early one. And I've gone a little bit up and down with him, but I've never really stopped enjoying The Undertaker a lot. So, yeah, um, those first impressions, yeah, just even thinking back on my own, like, they're very strong, for sure. Yeah, I remember Benoit to Jerry Lesnar from previous conversations. Yeah. I think it's the first time I've really kind of heard heard that Undertaker. So <laughs> he's probably one who's fallen off maybe a little bit of time because he's another one who like now is sticking around so long. I think he's finally retired. Yeah. He sort of like spoiled it for himself a little bit. But uh, even so, yeah, no, Undertaker he always ranks highly with me uh, when you're talking about kind of like the meat of his career. How much of his '90s stuff have you watched? Quite a bit. Uh, my wife is not so much into wrestling, but she does like The Undertaker. So we, we've kind of like shared that experience. Um, I've probably seen more of Undertaker from that career, that okay. part of his career than anybody in the 90s. So that because to me, knowing their careers and knowing what we're doing, 
consistently post-Hogan Savage era, I think Undertaker and Michaels will be two of the most interesting to follow from. Like they change, both of them change so many times and so much, and they progress and they switch and they this that and the other. So yeah, those will be good to watch. And there's definitely a lot that I don't know. Like even even with Undertaker, that area is hazy. Like I know he has a whole feud with what the million dollar corporation and yep. that that whole thing is like a huge question mark to me so i'm gonna find out some interesting things i think yeah dibiase will be doing fake undertaker at the same time that he's pretending like lex Luger sold out he's a very busy man in that time <laughs> oh yes the uh ted dibiase will just be reaching out across eras won't he that's that's interesting stuff i didn't enjoy him at that time but like you said about if we had watched wwf before wcw like, I can now understand, like, you know, the way he he is just, like, disrupting everything even in that time because that's all that he knows how to do is just to <laughs> completely disrupt. I'm very interested. I'll follow along Ted DiBiase. He's so great in this era. Eventually, he'll get into Money, Inc., which I expected to like and actually was kind of let down by. So we'll see if that carries over into this watch. And then, yeah, I don't really know what he does as a manager. So he's got a few years of that, and I'm really going to be examining that closely because I do like Ted DiBiase. I can see him going either way, but I'm really looking forward to at least checking it out. Man, this has been valuable because in my mind, I know we're getting closer and closer to Bret Hart. We're getting closer and closer to Shawn Michaels. We're getting closer. But there's always been this gap where I'm like, I cannot see how we're going to get to one uh, to the other. Now this conversation about Michaels somehow has connected that world to this one. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I have a path beyond Hogan and Savage and 92 and 93. So like something clicked in my brain and I've got things to look forward to after this conversation. (laughs) That's great. I'm glad to hear that because I'm really looking forward to the rest of the series. There will be good and there will be bad, but man, I think we're going to pull some real gems some true uh, powerful feelings out of this stuff that we're going to be covering. I will just say that I believe all of Shawn Michaels' career is symbolized in his leap over the top rope where it's like, this was like the highest leap I've ever seen a wrestler do, but it also looks like the sharpest fall at the same time. He's not, he's not doing the one thing you're asking him to do. He's not hitting perfect, but he's hitting everything else in an interesting way. So that, that dive is kind of in captures the good, the bad, and the ugly, and all the things to come when we discuss Shawn Michaels. <laughs> that is a great way to put it. Uh, this is a dive that you really have to see to believe, yes. I think. Uh, it's incredible. And I love also that even though, yeah, he mostly he misses perfect here, uh, he catches him just a little bit, he kind of knocks him over, and then he does something which I think is so great, he immediately, like, crawls onto perfect and starts punching him, and there's no, like, let's lie around for a while. It's like yeah. he goes right back on it. And I don't know, that just adds a little something, which makes it even better, I think. Absolutely. There's a thing, it's not even supposed to be a pattern, but it kind of is. It will be a storyline when we see Flair versus Michaels, but it seems like every time Michaels is wrestling a one-on-one match, Marty comes out, and Michaels was doing better before Marty comes out. (laughs) At least he's not on crutches, but uh, yes, he does uh, crawl. Marty Gennady comes down. He wants to check on Michaels. Michaels uh, is, is beat up. Funny enough, that fall didn't mess him up, but uh, he gets he gets launched into the guardrail pretty good by Perfect, and uh, it really does take him out of the match here for a moment. And we get to see a preview of uh, some of the beautiful selling that Shawn Michaels will do, and I, I will say when he is on with that, when he is not uh, – because at times I think we know Michaels will be over the top, but here it's like it's really right on point, I think. 
Yeah. He does the Ric Flair corner bump and and then he's clotheslined on the apron like perfect. You rarely see that with the baby face doing that and then getting clotheslined on the apron like that. That was nice. That was very nice. And I think uh, a sign both that Shawn Michaels um, is maybe already par- preparing for a possible heel turn and also, as we know, like idolizing Ric Flair and maybe mm. uh, incorporating some of his stuff in here. This is also the great ones in that when they do something that's like someone else but you don't see them as an imitation of that person. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff, man. I'm just thinking now, um, (laughs) and eventually we'll finish talking about this match, but we've talked about like possible people that Ric Flair could have been paired up with in different scenarios in the WWF. And God, now I'm wondering if you add Shawn Michaels as a protege to that all blonde, uh, super stable of Flair, Keenan and perfect. God, what does that look like? I don't know, but just thinking about that for a second, um, I don't know, that excited my imagination a little bit. Yeah, it would have been... It would have put the spotlight interesting on Michaels, especially with Flair leaving that elevates Michaels. But the weird thing is, it almost happens in a way because Ric Flair is with Bobby Heenan, and then Bobby Heenan brings in Lex Luger, and he even references, like, Ric Flair and I believe about Luger because Flair's, like, for five minutes in the same company. <laughs> but then Lex Luger at WrestleMania 9 is hanging out in the back with Shawn Michaels, and then Mr. Perfect trades his feud with Luger for Michaels. So he's almost in that line, like, he, he's there but not there, and there's this weird, like, sequence that is and isn't at the same time. Yeah, it almost could have overlapped, but it doesn't quite. So, uh, you know, it's interesting stuff, though, and we'll get into all of that. As we I will tell you, this is the last thing. I'll bring this up again probably when we do WrestleMania 9. But, like, imagine, like, life made so much sense for me for a couple of years, and then the rest of my life has been a disaster. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> the years that made sense. Lex Luger is my first favorite wrestler. There's no conversation. There's no question. Shawn Michaels is my first favorite WWF wrestler. No conversation. No question. And then all of a sudden, they have this segment where Mr. Perfect goes backstage, and you rarely see backstage. And guess who's hanging out backstage? Lex Luger and Shawn Michaels. And it's like, oh, it all makes sense. Of course they're hanging out. They're my favorite wrestlers. Everything in sequence. Everything in narrative. I must have an amazing life to come. They're going to have great careers. Everything's going to be good. Uh, what, a, what a year or two. What uh, do Flair, um, no, do Michaels and Luger wrestle each other at any point? Like, they have a lot of overlap in this WWF run that they're both going to have. So, you would know better than anyone. Do they ever actually wrestle each other? I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't. I know Luger wrestles Diesel for the IC title and Sean is managing and not, you know, he's not wrestling at the time. So, I know right. that happens. I can't remember. Part of me feels like there was a Luger and Michaels match, but. I know for a fact he wrestled Diesel for the IC title and Michaels was in the corner of Diesel. And also, like I started, that's another thing I hated Michaels because Luger was, uh, Michaels threw Luger out while, or Davey, someone, Luger was like final three, I think, or final four in that 95. And at the time I was like, you can't have Michaels, Michaels, it's a nobody. How did, how did he eliminate Lex Luger? So that was my first <laughs> test between the two. Oh man, they'll have a few. A few house show matches in 95 one-on-one, but the only time they ever are in the ring together, and maybe not even at the same time, is in uh, a couple of Royal Rumbles, so that's another missed opportunity. Man, I can so... Something about that, like, I don't know, I can see that that super kick, like, crashing into Lex Luger so clearly in Mm. my mind, so I don't know. It's a missed opportunity, I think. 
why didn't Luga wrestle? Like, he won't wrestle Vader, and he won't wrestle all these guys that I would have loved to see him wrestle. So, I don't know. That bums me out a little bit. Yeah, they, they really misuse Luga. I don't understand, like, we'll have two conversations. We'll have the 93 push that goes away, but then just why they decide for, like, a year and a half or two years that they're not going to do anything with him whatsoever. Yeah, that that's a big question mark to me as well. I don't know what's going to happen in that time. Probably nothing very interesting, but um, we'll see. Uh, all right, we're almost out of time, so let's let's continue talking about this great match. Um, we have Perfect uh, in control for a while. Um, he gets uh, in Janetti's face at the wrong time, and he ends up actually getting punched for it. Bobby Heenan runs down. He wasn't here before, but he runs down to kind of get involved. Um, Perfect kind of uses him as a distraction. He takes out Janetti. And, uh, yeah, no, th- there's some very good stuff as they move along with this match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michaels does a running... A swinging neck breaker where he comes in full swing but still hits a beautiful swinging neck breaker. It's just as much as any match like, that we recommend, I recommend this matchup. It's important because yeah. a hundred reasons, but Perfect's in his kind of prime prime. Michaels is in his come up. It's a very special like overlap between them. It's very good. I mean, we got a long ways to go, but I could see this match coming up again at the uh, you know five year kind of review section that we do. Yeah, I, I think it's just fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, we get a lot of, uh, familiar, uh, Mr. Perfect, great bits. He bounces out of the corner. He gets his leg kicked out and like back flips over, which I always mm. love. Um, some great stuff. Uh, Michaels, he gets Mr. Perfect down. He goes up to the top rope. Bobby Heenan jumps up on the apron and tries to knock him off. Michaels gets away from him. He grabs Bobby Heenan and Mr. Perfect attacks, uh, Michaels from behind. He hits that perfect plex. It looks like he's going to win. The big boss man runs out and he attacks Mr. Perfect just at this particular moment. So I'll let you interpret that as you like. Um, but, uh, yeah, we get the hot um, post-match where <laughs> this is great. Mr. Perfect at one point takes a bump just because big boss man looks at him. And I popped for that. So mm-hmm. so very hot at the finish. Maybe a little unsatisfying if you wanted a clean finish. But still, some very good stuff in here. Yeah, it's also a bonus show where Perfect ran in to help Bobby Heenan. Bobby Heenan ran in to help Perfect. Bossman ran in in all kinds of matches. So there's a lot of <laughs> patterns going on. Absolutely. And we've talked before, like, if you can get something that feels interconnected, it works so well. That's a lot of what we were missing in 1990 when it seemed like nobody had an interesting story. Now almost everyone has some kind of story, and they're all running out, and they're helping each other, and it's very interconnected. It's very good stuff. Yeah, man, this is uh, – I like props to you because you picked all this stuff out, and I did not know this match existed. And this was – this and the conversation about Michaels has lit a future legacy fire in me, so I greatly appreciate that. I love it. Yes, this is the time. We were feeling low just a few episodes ago, but now we're in 1991, and the world looks brighter, I think. So uh, we're going we're gonna to have a lot of fun as we follow through on this legacy series. So – Ooh, all right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up here? No, I'm good. I think this is a great bonus episode. It linked a lot of things together. And we're on the heels, man. You got to give credit however you feel about each WrestleMania individually. There are seven WrestleManias in, and we've covered all of them. So we are growing that WrestleMania number as we go. We are. And I got to say, on paper, this looks like one of the most interesting WrestleManias we've had in a bit. There's just a lot of good stuff going on on this card. So we'll see if it holds up when we watch it. It should be fun, though. 
Uh, thanks for everyone for listening. If you ever want to shout us out, I am on Twitter. I am at Spectral Gent. Give me a shout. Give me a follow. Please check out the rest of the great programs on LOP Radio and a lot of great written material on LOPForums.com and WrestlingHeadlines.com. A lot of great stuff. You can come join the conversation. Very good time. That is all we have for today. Next week, it is WrestleMania 7, and we will cover it all. We'll be there, and we hope you'll be there as well. Until then, Mystic, take us home. Until next time, don't let the legacy be dictated to you. Rewatch, revisit, rewrite. I saw an undiscovered creature climbing on the mountainside. You know that no one else believed me. How about that? With green eyes and white stripes and salted tears I knew that these were just its cautionary features Keep telling myself nothing to fear It's just an undiscovered creature Coming up to meet ya He's the one that's scared It's just an undiscovered creature Coming up to meet ya He's the one that's scared The undiscovered creature The undiscovered creature I never saw this one in books Or heard a myth of it Looks like it came from underwater I thought I'd seen Every life form But there it is An undiscovered creature Coming up to meet ya He's the one